everyone and welcome to episode 61 of the Retrospectors podcast, Fallout 1. My name is Patrick Arthur and I'm joined as always by my co-host James Sterlings. How are you going James? Pretty good, thanks. And uh, I'm joined by a very special guest, Chris Worthington of the Retro Asylum podcast. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, Chris. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Chris, um, before we get into our episode, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I mentioned that you're the uh, the host of the Retro Asylum podcast. Tell us a little about about that. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. Yeah, so I feel like before I do that, I feel like I need to address something from the Another World episode, and this is the whole... <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm going to say, don't you? <laughs> this is the I whole... I don't know. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, so, th- so you, made a, you, you made a point quite rightly saying, oh, they, they describe themselves as the UK's number one retro gaming podcast oh, right. let, let me just now let me just explain <laughs> so <laughs> so i've been with retro asylum for coming up for three years and um, but the podcast itself has been going now this is this is it's in its 10th year so it, it hits its 10th ten, yeah it's been a long time so it started in 2011 by my co-host dean swain and co-founder andy godoy who who is uh, now he does the Andy Godoy show show on YouTube and a couple of other podcasts. Um, in twenty thirteen, long before I joined the podcast, they actually won an award for the UK's best retro gaming podcast. That's some podcast awards. So ever since then, even though it was eight years ago, it's become, <laughs> it's, become it's become a little bit of a tongue in cheek in joke in the UK retro gaming podcast and seeing that oh, retro asylum is still banging on about the fact that they won an award eight years ago so <laughs> i've um i've continued that into my twitter profile and now describe myself as a co-host of the uk's number one retro gaming podcast very nice i i had my suspicions it was an in joke but i was like yeah. mm, maybe not maybe maybe he's incredibly <laughs> proud of his achievements <laughs> and maybe he's being you know knighted by the queen or whatever it is you brits do <laughs> she, she really ought to knight us for services to podcasting of course <laughs> but i suspect i suspect she never will but it was different back then you know when when retro asylum started in 2011 the podcasting scene i mean now there's you know there's so many but back in 2011 it was it was really different i mean it was certainly not the oldest uk retro gaming podcast i think there's a podcast called retro gaming roundup which you may be familiar with i haven't listened to that but kane and rinse must be contemporary to you guys like they would have started about eight years ago or so right 2012 Twelve, I think. Mm. Kane, I'm a big fan of Kane and Rince. It's one of my one of one of my favourites, and uh, they they also I think may be celebrating their. I think they started right at the end of 2011 and sort of got into their proper rhythm of the review shows in 2012. So it, it, you know we've it's been going for a long time. And Retro Asylum is a um, it's really like a magazine podcast. I mean, we do a bit of everything, the occasional interview, although that's not really our wheelhouse. There's other podcasts that do that a lot better than we do. But it's the occasional interview, a lot of just general nostalgia chat about games, and that kind of tends to swell out into movies and music mm. of the 80s and 90s. And then when I mm. came involved, it was really to help Mads, who was trying to get this game club off the ground. So I, I came on board really to help him do that. 
Uh, my role is kind it of just spiraled out of control from there. <laughs> it went all downhill from there. I mean, they won't be winning any more awards. I can tell you that. <laughs> was um, the um, was the game club thing its own thing before your playthrough podcast, or was it always going to be a separate podcast? Yeah. So the game the game club is 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 still going, and and what I loved about the game club, and it's very similar to what to what you guys do, uh, and what others do as well, in that. You know, we we through fair means or foul, we have access to pretty much the vast majority of every video game ever made. How mm. can we possibly choose what to play amongst the tens and hundreds of thousands of games that we could possibly play? The beauty about the game club is that it makes you much like you guys do with the games you cover. It actually makes you not play these games for five or ten minutes. But if you know at the end of the month or at the end of the two-week period you're going to be sitting and talking about these games, you better make sure that you've played them. <laughs> Otherwise, you'll be found <laughs> out very quickly. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's really interesting because it makes you play stuff that you just wouldn't play otherwise, right? Like exactly. I've played so many games I never would have picked for myself in this show, and I know that's absolutely the case for Pat as well, right? Yeah, some, some of them to my absolute rage, but some of them <laughs> I've, um, I've really delighted in, um, in exploring. And I think the best example of that is definitely... Katamari Damacy. I don't know if you've yeah, ever played that yeah, game before, yeah. but yeah. but sort of game I would never have gone into, and yeah. then I played it, and it was just it was just delightful. I yeah. just, I just loved every moment of it. Yeah, but how many games have you played for your podcast as well? Where you might, you know, maybe Katamari Damacy is is a good example where you might have put it on for five minutes, said right, that's definitely not for me. Off it goes. You'd never look at it again. Some of these games you've actually got to get under the skin, and you've got to actually play them yes, to really yeah. appreciate what they do so that's what the game club did for me and what it does for us it 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 kind of is a curated selection of of games you know we have a lovely community that that very active on discord occasionally we have high score challenges we've just finished playing a an obscure 1983 arcade game called zookeeper one of the title of america games which probably wasn't great (laughs) (laughs) i was i've I've been following all the high scores that get posted and been very confused with people saying i hit a two hundred and fifty thousand point jump when it seems like a lot of the high scores are barely even twice that (laughs) yeah i think it's one of those games where you anyone can play for the first time and if you just get lucky you could rack up a very very high score (laughs) yeah i played it all month and didn't rack up a score, so <laughs> what, what can you say? Playthrough is my other podcast. Thank you for mentioning that. So Playthrough came out of... I, yeah, I, I like gaming of, of all ages. I don't just like retro games. I love the historical perspective of the old games, but I also enjoy playing the modern games. Again, choice paralysis of just what to play. You know, what, what should I play next? So I kind of took the game club format um, and really ran with it with playthrough what playthrough is is more of a it's more of a blow by blow multi-part podcast for instance we did a series just recently on uh, disco elysium and on disco elysium mm-hmm. we split it into two each episode is two to three hours long and it really is for people who want that companion to play in a lot to, to play in it along with others So some people join in Discord, others just listen to the episodes. And it really is intended to be a 
look, this is a companion. This is what we're experiencing alongside you. So it's less of a review show, more of a kind of a play-by-play-along companion show, which uh, is going really well. From from what I've listened to and what I've seen, I mean, there's no strict theme, but I would say the thing that seems most consistent through all the games you've picked is that they all seem to have a strong narrative That's thread. Right. Yeah, maybe maybe uh, the Metroid Prime is maybe the exception there, which yeah. has a more traditional environmental storytelling sort of story structure. But the rest all seem to be have a very uh, a very engaging story that they want to tell. Yeah, I think that's not really a design thing. It's just you know we we in each season as we call it, we each each host picks a game and and, and we play it, and it just. It seems like that's just what we're all into, <laughs> um, but that is the case. You know, at the moment we're playing just started The Last of Us, which is our which is our next series, which is obviously another one that's known for its story, and uh, it's going really well. You know, I think we've got a little we've got a little group. It's not massive. I don't think it's got a massive audience, but the group that we have are really you know they're, they're playing along with us and they engage on Discord and we've got that little multiplayer group going. So, yeah, I mean to be honest, it's more like a book club for us hosts just to get together and talk about what we've been playing <laughs> it kind of feels a bit like that doesn't it? it's really like yeah. uh, cathartic getting to talk about these games once you finish them because you do oh, have a sure. lot of a lot of like feelings once you finish a game that you'd usually like before i did the show i felt like i never got it all off my chest but now yeah. i get to rant and rave whether <laughs> yeah. i loved or hated the game uh, and it's really it's really fun it was more James and I ruining uh, dinners between our friends. And they're like, can you two please shut up? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Guys, you need a podcast or something just to go and well, have that's these conversations. Really, that's really how we got our start, right? Like, Patrick and I would always, like, dominate arguments at, you know, dinner and, like, gatherings by talking about, you know, games and books and literature, whatever, yeah. um, mm. until eventually... Um, some wise guy suggested to me that we start a show and you know that's kind of where it all began yeah it's going really well i'm enjoying it you know i i I only i found out about you guys through one of our mutual listeners a guy called bussing rounds big shout out to him because i probably wouldn't be here but if it wasn't for him and uh you know I, i'm a sucker for these things i love hearing what other people think about games that i like or games that i think i might never play the amount of times i've listened to a a show like yours and thinking oh, I'll never play that game so I'll listen to that episode and by the end of the episode I'm thinking I really need to play that game so it works on both levels whether you've played the game or not so I'm a I'm a big fan I'm really pleased to be to be part of a small part of it on this episode okay so um yeah thank you so much for being with us today chris um we are of course the retrospectors podcast for new listeners the angle that we take on our show is that we review and play these old classic games or niche titles underappreciated ones but our goal isn't to uh, appreciate and understand them in the context in which they were created we're not looking to be a nostalgia based podcast we have one goal plain and simple was it a fun experience to play and would we recommend you to play it today in and amongst all the brilliant movies books games that get released in modern times because the interesting thing is that while a lot of the changes that have happened over the years in gaming history have been improvements that definitely isn't the case in every area and i think that there's a lot of games of the past that do things better than a lot of modern games but by the same token, there are also things which are done 
far far worse so we're looking to review the games we do each and every fortnight from a modern perspective to see if they're true classics that have truly stood the test of time this fortnight of course we're covering fallout 1 um, it's an open world turn-based rpg developed and published by interplay productions back in 1997 the game is set in an alternate history post-apocalyptic retro-futuristic future um, just to note retro-futuristic is an imagining of the future from a past perspective. So it's what people in the past thought the future might be like. In this world, a nuclear war has broken out and ravaged the entire world. And as the game starts, you emerge from a vault built by an organization called Vault Tech, which is basically a long-term community fallout shelter. Um, you play as this vault dweller and you've spent your entire life inside vault 13 and it was your family 86 years ago that had first entered this vault um, but finally after 86 years there's a problem the electronic chip that controls the water purification is broken and it's too complicated for anyone present to fix it's a issue of you know technology being too complicated and all the engineers who would normally deal with it are dead so the overseer of your vault is forced to send someone out into the wide world to get them a new microchip so that their vault society continue to function. And of course, the person selected to go out into the wider world is you. So before we get into the discussion of the game itself, it's probably good to give you guys um, a little bit of background on how we played and also our experience with Fallout and, um, and other similar games. So, um, Chris, why don't you start? Let it, Tell us uh, and tell our listeners how you played Fallout, because there's definitely a few different ways to access this game nowadays. Yeah, for sure. So, probably worth saying, this this only ever got a PC release, didn't it? So, it did get a Windows release, according to Moby Games, but I definitely played the DOS version. Yes, this is a this is a this is a PC titled exclusive. Yeah, first came out on DOS, and then I think it came out on Windows. On a, a Windows later. port later, didn't it? Yeah. So yeah. I th- this the game is available on Steam and good old games, and uh, I, I'm a big believer. Uh, you, you know, I'm I, I'm not someone who will die in a ditch over this kind of thing, but I'm a big believer that if it, if a game is available to be purchased, it should be purchased. So I I went and bought it on on good old games. I did fire it up on, through GOG. But the video sessions were terrible. And mm-hmm. we, we are going to play Fallout 2. You're going to guest on my podcast later this year, and we're going to look at Fallout 2. And I must say, I've had a quick look at Fallout 2, and I've seen the same kind of problem. So the vi- I couldn't get the video settings right. It was either stretching the image, or the resolution was too high. And I thought, well, I probably could mess around with it and get it right and follow some guides. But I do have downloaded a... It's like a Tosec image of every single DOS game ever released. Now, look, I'm not an advocate of of piracy. There are times when, in order to appreciate historical works, which aren't available elsewhere, then it feels like a necessity. But having bought Fallout on GOG, with good conscience, I felt like I could go and run it through my... uh, this. it, it, it uses a Launchbox front end. It's called ExoDoz, the ExoDoz archive. So it it all operates through Launchbox. It gives you a Launchbox download. But when you download an individual game like Fallout, not only does it give you... It comes with the manual, the soundtrack, the the, the Brady Games Guide. Um, but what it does, it configures the video settings to what the 
author of whoever put this particular fallout into this this archive considers to be the most authentic and best way to run it on modern PCs. So using that version, I immediately fired it up and felt like I probably had the best uh, version of this game that I could probably get my hands on today. So that's how I played it through that. And I must say, I didn't have any issues running it. It ran really well. No crashes. Yeah, just just perfectly. It was great. Were you um running with any mods? Because I was running with Fallout Fixed. I don't know if that comes automatically included in the GOG version. I don't. I don't think so. Although I could be okay. wrong. I literally only fired the GOG version at once. I hate the way that looks. And then, <laughs> and then didn't didn't load it up again. So I, I, this 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 version that I played definitely didn't come with any mods. Yeah, it's it's hard because GOG is increasingly um, including these, you yes. know, just pure, pure fix patches or yeah. light light fix patches with the games instead yeah. of having to get them separately. So okay. I played through Steam and I had to download Fallout Fixed, and it's a full on restoration mod, kind of similar to okay. the one we had with Vampire Masquerade Bloodlines. Yeah, but you can choose your level of. Um, of installation and i just went for the pure one so it's basically just bug and scripting fixes right. james you, you played on gog do, do you know if it was included or if you had to download it separately uh i actually played the steam version as well i don't know where you got that oh, okay. from <laughs> um yeah, so i either. also installed fallout fixed and like you selected the one that was you know the most pure version with only the fixes um and i found that it worked perfectly for me i had it running in a window that i could resize as i liked um the i found that the hud scaling worked perfectly on my machine um when i tried to run it in full screen however um it did shrink the hud so i just left it in window mode for my entire playthrough yeah i it probably took me two hours to get this game looking like i wanted to it sounds like i should have done what chris did but after <laughs> a lot of tweaking and some notepad editing um i got it looking how it should um in full screen with no ui stretching so um just do what chris said don't don't listen to to me or james in this well, for Fallout 2, I'm going to have to put a bit of effort into it, I think, because Fallout 2 didn't get a DOS release. So it came ah, out. of course. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess everyone will come crawling to me then. And uh, I don't even remember all the changes I made, so we'll be starting from scratch again. Okay, well, we'll all be in the same boat then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, mostly like you guys, it all ran smoothly. I was pretty happy with it. So um, do recommend if you're not doing what Chris said, do find Fallout Fixed and install the basic version. I know that there are a lot of bugs and issues with the base version. Um, so please do that at the absolute minimum. Um, next, I wanted to talk a little bit about our broad gaming experiences in this genre and the the comparisons we'll be bringing um so i've played fallout 3 i've played fallout 3 new vegas sorry fallout new vegas like twice back to back to back i really enjoyed new vegas played a lot um and the other big point of comparison that i'm going to be relying on and i'll be trying to explain this because i don't think either of you have played this is a game called underrail and Underrail is a game that was designed with the intention of being a spiritual successor to Fallout. Oh, so cool. there's a lot about this game, Underrail, which, for the record, is one of the best games I've played in the past few years. I, I absolutely adore it. Is that it modernizes a lot of what what is seems to be be here in Fallout One. 
So um, I make sure to explain things uh, that are different in Underrail before just saying, well, Underrail did this better, but I uh, thought it was worth bringing up. I've never even heard of that game. He goes on about it all the time. <laughs> I do. I, I go on about it too much, but I have a legitimate reason to for once. Mm. So as for me, I've played about, I'd say like six to eight hours of both Fallout 3 and 4. Um, prior to that, I hadn't played either Fallout 1 or 2. Um, for like CRPGs, I've played maybe the tutorial section of Baldur's Gate 2, um, much, to, <laughs> much to one of my friend's chagrin. Um, and I have played through most of Divinity Original Sin 1 and 2. Um, and, you know, in terms of like turn-based tactics games, I've played like a bit of XCOM and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah. CRPGs in general, I don't have a heap of experience, especially not the older titles. So this was mostly a new experience for me. Yeah, and for me. So I think there's probably people who've listened to me on other podcasts who just assume that I'm I'm a a, a big CRPG player. The, the honest answer is, I've, other than Disco Elysium, which I only finished earlier this year, I've actually never finished a CRPG now other than Fallout. I must have played the first half hour of oh, dozens, dozens of them. I, I bounced off Fallout 1 and 2 back in the day. They've always been games that I've always liked the idea of, but I've always found them just a, a little inaccessible and i'll talk a little bit i'm sure we'll cover mm. Mm. there is definitely a, a hump in this game that i think you need to overcome if you want to really get the most out of it jrpgs are my are, are, are my favorite genre of games. yes <laughs> disgusting <laughs> how can you say this oh i'm so disappointed in you I, chris before we started i said we'd get along really well now i know that cannot be true <laughs> <laughs> Oh, You've yes. just not found the right one. Yeah, well, that's what <laughs> everyone sure tells me. I am linking I'm you so to happy. my Lunar Silver Star story article after this, and you will read it, and maybe you'll be a better human I being love at that the game. end of it. Oh, boy. <laughs> you got to read this. I want to see the fireworks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so funny. He hates them oh, so much. So words much. cannot express. Yeah. But they're also my favourite genre as well, so I think uh, so this is great. I feel like uh, I have someone <laughs> to to fight I'm, against. I'm feeling Pat ganged up on again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's every guest episode. I wonder why that yeah, is. Yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> Patrick, at some point, you just need to face the fact that it's probably you, not the JRPGs. You know, you just need to come and embrace it. We'll see. He, his his opinion on Vagrant Story did go up over the years it i feel did, yes. after the fact so i think yeah. there's there's hope for him yet but uh... <laughs> <laughs> so yes yeah, crpgs are are really you know i feel like they're not a new genre but in terms of playing games to completion they are i've i own every single fallout game apart from the two the two spin-offs um tactics and, and brotherhood of steel yep. mm. have you played 76 at all no yeah, me neither what a nightmare i hear it's terrible well i think it's getting better from what i hear and understand they've patched it now and there is more to do i think the problem with with it was that unfortunately they took the old barren wasteland too far and actually <laughs> made the game a bit of a barren wasteland as well which was just nothing to do I have no interest in MMOs, to be honest. I mean, gaming for me has always been a, a solitary pursuit. It's, I've just got no interest hmm. in in an MMO. But maybe, you know, if, if this starts a Fallout 
run, which for me, I, th- I think it will. I think I, I, I really want to play three in New Vegas now. I believe that they are excellent, and uh, yeah, I think this is the start of a new of a new lifelong friend in Fallout. I like it. So uh, we should probably jump into um, the character creation because the very first thing you do in Fallout after the overseer tells you to, you know, magically fix this problem somehow is you've got to create your character. And, um, you know, this is an RPG. There's a lot of different ways to create your character. So broadly speaking, I'll just give a brief rundown on the character creation. So you've got the special system, which uh, is your base, you know, bread and butter stat system. You know, it's things like strength, charisma, luck. And you can allocate the points um, between 1 and 10 up to to your liking. And this informs a bunch of skill checks. And it also uh, has flow-on effects for your skills. Your skills, of course, are the things that you're going to be using to murder, to murder sneak, and <laughs> pick-lock your way across the wasteland. Um, this is how you'll mostly be interacting with the game. And they're going to... These skills inform most of your interactions with people in your environment. You also select two traits, and traits have both a positive and a negative ramification. Um, and they're actually fairly important. There are a couple of traits that are more neutral, but most of them have a you know a downside and upside. So it's an RPG. The way we created our characters probably, I mean, I guess we'll find out, um, dramatically change how we experience the game. Chris, tell us a little bit about your character and the kind of character you created. So I probably, well, I, I, for the longest time, I thought I'd made a big mistake with my character. So I, I went into the, I did, by the way, guys, did you read the manual? Absolutely. Yes. The manual is absolutely brilliant. Mm-hmm. It's it's 125 pages long. I mean, back when manuals were manuals and weren't just a flimsy piece of paper, which tells you to point you to a website or something like that. It's, to me, they were always that thing you wrote, you read on the car drive back with your parents. <laughs> exactly, <so> yeah. Like, <laughs> exactly. But it, it's great. And, and it's it probably is essential, I would say, before you start creating your character, that you need to understand what each of the, particularly kind of what the skills mean. Although I obviously weren't, wasn't paying too close attention because in the manual, it specifically says you probably don't want to lower any of your stats below four. Well, <laughs> how can you not? That's uh, just min-maxing 101. Yeah, you have to. <laughs> well, I, I'm glad you said that because I did. So I, I went. I, I wanted to go with a high intelligent, low strength build. That was mm-hmm. uh, that was the way I played Disco Elysium, and all CRPGs are the same, right? You know, if I can get through Disco, <laughs> 25 oh, <boy>. years later, <laughs> yeah. uh, Disco is not the uh, is not the comparative standard. I don't think it's the no. outlier. <laughs> no, I know. Yeah, I I very much get that now. <laughs> and uh so I yeah, I had a low strength 3. I had a strength of 3 and I set charisma and intelligence I think to 8. I have I've got an image of what my character looks like now, but obviously over the course of the game you you can wear armor and you can have surgery to improve your stats so uh, looking at it now I, I think i started with eight on intelligence and charisma three for strength and luck and the rest of them were kind of all middle of the road stuff mm-hmm. 
So you made thought, the opposite character that I did, basically. Really? Because I wanted to make a character that, like, you guys probably wouldn't make. And I know Patrick loves his guns, so he would definitely be picking, <laughs> like, an aiming charisma character. Am I really that, um, that obvious? But yes. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> so I wanted to... So I made the, like, the big, dumb, brute kind of character. I had 10 okay. strength. Um, I had, like, 4 intelligence, 4... Uh, charisma, uh, like two perception, and like nine <laughs> nine luck and eight endurance. So I was a big dumb lucky brute. Um, nice. And then there's an extra wrinkle to the character selection, which is traits, which are these yeah. like these passives that are kind of not entirely benefits. There's like some good and some bad about them. And the one that I took was jinxed, which is. Um, more critical fails happen. So basically, oh God. whenever any character miss, and this applies to you as well, um, whenever any character misses an attack ever, um, there is a 50-50 coin flip for it to be a critical failure. Um, <laughs> so my character was supposed to be like big dumb and misfortune follows him wherever he goes. So so you kept dropping your weapon? Uh, yes, Yeah, we will talk about that. <laughs> that happened a lot. <laughs> So you don't have to select traits, do you? That you can no. you can choose not to, but what How where's boring. the fun in that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, where's the fun in that? So this is my second mistake in building my character. So what I didn't again, I did read the manual, but obviously not closely enough. So your carry weight, which is the amount of stuff <laughs> you can carry around with you, is linked to your strength. Strength. So Yeah. So you get I think it's is it you get a base of, I want to say something like 30. And then for every strength point, it's another 15 pounds or kilos, however it measures it, in in, in capacity for stuff that you can carry in your inventory. Mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't realize that. So, that <laughs> so what I did, I chose the small frame trait, which increases your agility, which seems to have no discernible impact upon the game. I could see, but it lowers your carry. Your your... carry weight. <laughs> so I could only carry 60 kilos or pounds, however it says. Oh, it. I could no. only, which really hampered me. Um, agility is really important, by the way. That's what determines Oh, is it? Your, well, there we go. Yeah, that's what determines your action points. So your oh, agility. Yeah. So, I mean, yes, you probably stuffed up a bit there, but agility is extremely important. So getting extra agility is good. Okay. Okay. So I had four agility when I started. Um, so in combat, it costs four points to open your inventory in combat. So if I accessed my inventory, that was my whole turn. I couldn't use what was in my inventory. I could just look in my bag. Um, oh, okay. So at the start of the game, there were a lot of problems with moving and attacking at the same time. That didn't happen a lot. Yeah. Um, because I was I was a melee character too. I was a big dumb guy who punched things. Um, <laughs> well, I used I used like a melee weapon rather than being unarmed. But yeah, uh, me being low on agility was a big hindrance. Like you and your um yeah. your your carry weight because I had like two fifty as my base carry weight. Oh, and wow. then it went up a little. Yeah. So I, my bags were full. <laughs> yeah. I, I basically for the whole game couldn't really wear armor. Because I couldn't, oh I couldn't God. carry it. Couldn't carry it. That's Holy awful. <laughs> yeah. 
I I think um you know what this seems like uh, briefly my character was not quite as boring as James suggested but it's pretty close. Uh I I didn't put many points into charisma or speech. So I was very much relying on um my intelligence, my ability to kill things and my agility for lock picking. So I did a lot of lock picking, hacking and murdering people and failed a lot of speech checks which led to me murdering people mostly. Uh, but yeah, it was very much more mechanical driven playthrough with none of the fun craziness you guys got into. Um, I mm. think we were going to talk about world building first, but honestly, let, are you guys happy just to launch into a discussion on the strengths of this RPG character system? Because I think it feels like a natural natural lead on. Yeah. 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 So, um, I, Sorry, you go on, James, please. We haven't really touched on this on the show yet, but something that I love in games is character customization at the start of a game. Like, I reckon I tend to spend way longer than most people in character customization, like looking at all the different possibilities and trying to figure out like exactly the one that I want to pick. And I thought that the character customization in Fallout 1 was really good. I was really excited to make this like silly strength character and, you know, go out into the world with it. I found it, you know, a really satisfying process. Um so I was really happy with it. Yeah, I think I I I tried to just let it be intuitive and just kind of say, well, naturally, kind of how do I want to build this character? But it never did occur to me. There are three preset builds mm. that it gives a nice, quite a nice profile in the manual, but it never once occurred to me to do that. You know, I see the, this part of the game yeah. is creating the character. And uh, I, I think where the way I approached this was to say, well, okay, I want to go with a high intelligence, low strength, but ultimately I want to kind of, I'll just, I'll plow point averagely across the character. And I think that very quickly emerged as probably the wrong way to play this. I think you have to almost decide what your character is going to be like and then role play that character. So I went with small guns as my, one of my signature skills. Mm -hmm. And I think I went with speech as well was, was the other one. So once I stopped thinking about, okay, well, now they're my signatures, I can now plow points in, in other things which I'm not very good at, and actually just went, well, that's my character, I'm going to major on those points, I got a lot more out of the game generally, I would say. Yeah, when I was making my character, I kind of went into it with the mindset that this is this is supposed to be more closer to like a tabletop game, so I'm going to try and make a character who mm. has strengths and weaknesses. And I, 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 to be honest, I did find the skills a bit limiting in that yeah. regard. Like for melee, you have the option of putting points into melee uh, weapons or unarmed, which kind of like mm. stepping on each other's toes. So I ended up going with melee weapons gambling which is its own stat for some reason but i put a lot of points i put a lot of points into gambling over the course of the game um and then i couldn't figure out what to do for the third one because it didn't really fit with nothing really fit with the flavor of what i was trying to go for so i just put uh, the third tag skill on speechcraft because i knew maybe that'll be useful later i think um Broadly speaking, I really like the character creation process. I think it gives you a lot of flexibility to create, you know, a wide array of different characters. Where I think Fallout's RPG systems are a bit weaker is in character progression. Um, there's two main reasons for this. The first is that 
most skills start to effectively get capped at around 100. I, I don't actually know how it works, but it either gets capped or there's dramatically diminishing returns. And you can max the skills that you tagged probably by like level five. So you can be yeah. as good as you can, can be at, you know, the three skills you've tagged by level five. And that felt extremely limiting to me because instead of continuing to improve this thing that I was good at, I just had to start awkwardly and slowly rounding out one or two statistics. I think these things work better if there's a continuous improvement, if not to the absolute end of the game, at least late into the mid game. Um, yeah. The other thing is that I think the perks in this game are awful. Perks in the later Fallout games have dramatic impacts. Every time you get a level up, you get so excited to get a perk because it gives you these yeah. serious buffs. The perks that you get every three levels in Fallout 1 suck balls. Like they, they might give you the equivalent <laughs> of like a 2 to 5% power bump. There are some good ones sprinkled throughout, but for the most part, they're an endless disappointment. Yeah, I'll... I'm not sure I I'm not sure I agree that they're disappointed. I think my issue was that there wasn't enough of them. I mean, you don't I don't know about you guys, but I ended this game on level 11. You only get a perk every 3 levels. So I only I only got 3 of them. And actually one I one of the perks I got, the second one was empathy. Now, that kind of almost broke the speech <laughs> system in some ways because you get this wonderful mass effect style when you talk to someone they, like the the good the good response or what mm. will elicit a good response kind of like the green. modern deus ex games when you get that augmentation yeah exactly yeah, yeah exactly uh, and then the stuff that will lead you either to being murdered or having to murder somebody will be red and then the stuff that would lead to a quest would be blue oh. so all of a sudden it takes a little bit of the fun out of oh if i click this will i end up having to reload my game if that can be described as fun or <laughs> you you were more certain of the outcome in conversations, which I suppose is a good thing or a bad thing, but it was quite impactful on the way I played the game. Yeah, I kind of agree with Patrick about the perks and with you about how often you get them. So I finished my playthrough at level 12. I probably could have at 11, but I wanted to get another perk because I wanted <laughs> yeah. to see it again. Like getting per you get per because you get perks only a couple times throughout the game it makes that feeling of like when you're about to get it feel really exciting and i found myself like really looking for as much xp as i could so i could get that yeah. perk only to get to the perk list and be like well you know maybe that wasn't as worth it as i was hoping for for example i've played fallout 3 and 4 and one of the reasons i played a high luck character in this one was that my high luck character in Fallout 4 was really fun to play. Um, and so I took the Mysterious Stranger perk, which, you know, I took in 3 and 4 and was really cool, which is, you know, uh, a random ally will join you in some battles. Um, but in Fallout 1, he only shows up in random battles on the overworld, never in battles, you know, like at the military base or, yeah. you know, anywhere else. So that was really underwhelming for me. Um, and mm. the other ones I took were ones that gave me more movement because my movement was shite <laughs> up until that point. So, so speaking to what you said, Chris, how you said you wish there were more of them, I think part of the problem is also that 
it seems like a lot of the requirements to get specific perks is tied to your special stats whereas i think that it would have been better to tie it to your skills and this is something that underrail does because what it would mean is that if you were like i'm going to invest a lot of points in repair you get this nifty repair perk whether it's like yeah you know turns uh disabling robots when you hack them into your allies or whatever it is because you're really good at repair but i think your stats that you select at the start of the game end up having too much impact as to what perks are available to you yeah i think the perks that you choose as well impact on what future perks can be made available as well Mm, so i got a i got a swift learner perk was the first one because it it meant that i get more skill points every time I leveled up. Mm-hmm. And then I yep. think that there was a... I think there was then another... I could have then got an, like an extra rank to that then when mm-hmm. the perks became available. But that just felt really boring to do that because it was just the same thing. <laughs> but it's... Yeah, yeah. Did you yeah. guys have this problem with the stat system where, like, for example, if you have about 60% in repair, um, then if you use repair on an object, it will repair it you know, one in 10 times, but because, you know, all you have to do is do it 10 times instead of once. It felt like I didn't need to put more points into it if I could just, you know, spend more time. Like, I'd rather save those points for other things. Like, uh, I didn't find, you know, you hit this point of diminishing returns real early. Yeah, that's... um. I I did notice that. Uh, I think it's better. I think it's a problem with the game. It should just be a binary yeah, failure agree. or succeed if you've got enough points or not. Yeah. Um, kind of feels like exploiting the system a little bit, doesn't it? It does a bit, yeah. Well, I mean, this, the game was pretty exploitable and I don't necessarily <laughs> think that's a bad thing because I think in single player games that can be really fun. Um, and yeah. we'll probably talk about that when we talk about uh, my experience with gambling. <laughs> so... The way gambling works is you go to a casino um, and then you bet like 50 caps or whatever it is in this game. I wasn't sure if it was bottle caps in this first one. but It is? Okay. So you bet 50 caps and then you'll either lose the money, break even, double your money or triple your money. Um, And the rate at which you succeed and fail is based on your gambling skill. And it's about like 85 percent gambling you win a lot more than you lose um which basically mean meant i had access to infinite money from like level three um you you could just you can just do it forever the the shopkeeper or the gate like the casino has infinite cash apparently they never run out so if you just sit there gambling for like 10 minutes you can come out with like twenty thousand bottle caps quite quickly (laughs) Um, so my, my dumb luck character was quite stacked with items throughout the whole game. And it was kind of funny, um, playing into, you know, what he was good at. And he could carry them all. He could absolutely carry them all. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that, Chris, with your 60 strength character. Cause my character had about 150 item capacity, which was annoying at times, but very manageable. I cannot imagine what 60 is like. Like, you you can barely... That would really hurt, because ammunition has a weight in this game. Well, exactly. And I think I... At one point, I wrote on Discord that I can barely... I can barely carry a gun. And that was (laughs) true. You know, my my character could barely hold a weapon. Any weapon. Even knuckle dusters weighed him down. (laughs) And it really did... it, It really did impact. I mean, I went with a... Because I was low strength, I went with small guns, because... 
thinking, okay, well, small guns are going to require less strength, and and that turned out to be right. So, yeah, all of the fun weapons were off limits for me. Shotguns, yeah, even an Uzi. Although, when I first got, the, you first get an Uzi when you go to uh, Vault Thirteen. Mm. I think we started, or do we start at thirteen? Is it fifteen? Vault fifteen, yeah, Vault fifteen. Yeah, so so when when we first go to try and get the water chip from from the the abandoned vault, you find an Uzi there, and I thought, oh great, but it it was minimum strength four, so I thought, well, you know, there's no point casting that round because my strength is three. What I didn't realize at that point was that I could have used that Uzi, and all it meant was that I would get an an accuracy penalty, which could be offset by my high small huh. gun skill. So I had to make this. I had to make decisions every single time I found something. Will I use this or won't I? Because I can't carry it around with me. So my inventory was always pretty much empty, apart from having some caps, some stim packs, the the occasional narcotics, and the weapon I was using, and leather armor. I mean, I the only time I progressed from leather armor was in when I joined the Brotherhood of Steel, which no doubt we'll talk about shortly. Uh, the in the locations was uh, you you can get some armor there which has actually been engineered to be lightweight, but other than that, I mean, I'd sold a lot of stuff. I would drop, th- I would put things on bookshelves that I knew I would I would go and have access to, so I could sell things at the merchants <laughs> to get caps, and then I'd go back to the bookcase and pick them up. And I had these around the world. I had these bookcases that I'd made a note <laughs> of where they were, where I'd store my items. It sounds like you were role-playing um, uh, Master Chief from Halo. You know, can only have two guns at once. Exactly. I felt like I was some little child wandering around the wasteland. He could barely, <laughs> you know, could barely carry himself, never mind anything to anything exciting. So, so can I ask, how, like, obviously that sounds immensely frustrating, but yeah. isn't there something to be said for that? Because it sounds like you, I mean, I know inventory management is a pain but did you find it had an impact on your ta- in, on like on your strategizing where you were thinking oh i can't i want this ammo not this ammo i want this gun not this gun that kind of thing or was it just annoying yeah for, i see what you mean so almost like limitation is the art of of invention isn't it so yeah. i had to be a little bit more creative to be honest on, on balance i found it just more annoying mm. i mean i had to because you don't really know I mean, it, the game does give you information on weapons and you can see the damage range, etc. But what I would have quite liked to have done was tried some of these things out. You know, at one point I had, like when I got to the hub, I had this, uh, I had the option of kind of maybe having a Desert Eagle Magnum or a, a, a this weapon that you get from a side quest which fires uh, balls. And really, I just had to decide based on, because I couldn't carry both of them, so I had to just decide which one I wanted to carry. Whenever there was any suggestion I was going to get involved in fights, I I wouldn't, because I knew I didn't really, I couldn't have, I couldn't really carry that much ammo, and I didn't really have any powerful weapons. So a lot of side quests were either closed off to me or were open to me, but I knew I'd never in a million years have a chance of of completing them but having said that i i finished the game you know and despite all of the limitations which i I felt i imposed upon my poor old (laughs) unsuspecting character (laughs) i it's probably speaks to the to to how good the game is that i still managed to get through it and to be honest managed to get through it fairly comfortably using a bit of the older well i mean i'd normally call it call it save scumming but the manual actively encourages you to save almost every every couple of minutes 
So yeah, there were scenarios I had to retry where you know I might have failed a lock pick and then someone gets cross with me. Um, but generally, I you know I I got through it without too much difficulty. Yeah, I use the save system a lot as well. Um, I found that even I think the main thing for me was that because I had jinxed that I would always drop my weapon and I would always lose all my ammo or skip my turns or get crit for a million and die instantly. Because um, near the end of the game, I had the the upgraded power armor, so it felt like even the strongest enemies they either they hit me for no damage, or they crit me for twice my health and I die instantly. Um, that happened to me quite a lot. My party members also would constantly critically miss, drop all their ammo, and be forced to use their fists to fight, or they would critically miss and shoot another ally in the face and kill them instantly, and that would be like, okay, I'm reloading because I want to keep my party member. <laughs> yeah, I um, I say scummed extensively as well, and I, yeah. I don't really think it's possible to play this game without save scumming. I think Agreed. if you, you could probably build like a character that is very careful, and if you understand all the stealth mechanics perfectly, etc., you could probably do it. But for your normal human being who's just playing the game to play the game, you got to save scum and you got to have rolling yeah. save scumming going on. Um, I tended <laughs> yeah. to save at the beginning of combat encounters and I wasn't like saving after every dice roll. I think that's probably pushing it a bit yeah. too far. But as long as you're willing to do that, and I think you got to do that, um, it's mostly fine. Yeah, there's so many situations where what you felt going into it could be an innocuous conversation with an NPC that you've never met would result in, you know, especially when you have little, little Jimmy, little Jimmy kind of running around with no strength, you know, it, it would result in no time at all with you having a fight with, you know, the, the NPC and six of his goons and they were unwilling, they were just unwinnable battles for me. So, I had to, so before every single conversation, I would save. And it felt wrong to do that. And I just have to keep telling myself, look, the manual tells me to do that. This is the way the designers want me to play the game. So it's fine. But it did feel disappointing that so many times I died after selecting the wrong dialogue option, which meant that I would just be murdered. I felt like a bit of a, a bit of a shame. It happens super early on as well. Like um, before yeah. I even discovered Shady Palms, I went to the Khans, uh, which is like a, it's like a gang gang member. The Raiders, yeah, yeah. Raider Raider hideout. And um, mm. I walked up to the head because you know I was walking around talking <laughs> to people, no problem. I walked up to the head of the camp, and he's like, "Hey, who are you?" I said, "I'm an explorer." He said, "We can't have that around here." Everyone pulls out their guns. I'm like, what? I just what? said I was an explorer. What's what's the problem? And I tried to um, I tried to roll with it a little bit. So there is this junk town, I think it is, that's before the the first big city you get to. Yeah. Um, I did a bunch of quests there, and then I walked into this hotel and saw this lady guarding a door, um, and yeah. I spoke to her. And she was kind of rude to me, and I was like, my character's not charismatic, and he's a bit big and dumb, so I'll have him be rude back to her. Um, and instantly the whole set of goons is on my case. Um, <laughs> my character's like the Hulk. He's an invincible killing machine in melee, um, and it was in a close quarters, so he kills them all. Uh, and then I'm like, okay, cool, put my weapons down. Nobody else seems to mind. Leave the ta leave the Leave the room, and then... All of the town guards immediately aggro to me, yeah. despite despite like me 
been pretty good friends with them based on the quests that I've done with them. So I yeah. killed one of them and then snuck out and for the rest of my playthrough didn't go back to Junktown. Oh, what d- that's good dedication. Yeah. I tried to. I, I, I didn't always work out. And on the whole, I'm kind of down on how much you need to and how little... I guess that the game lets you roll with the punches, like, especially in those combat scenarios where you just get crit and instantly killed. There's like, it's kind of annoying, right? I think I I did make my piece with it over the course of the game. And what I learned towards the end was if you're talking to someone, I think it happens when you get to the boneyard, the first guy you, you talk to says, oh... My, such such and such. I think the blades, the blade, the leader of the blades killed my son. Could you go and kill the leader of the blades? I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll go and do that. I had no intention of killing anybody for for this bloke, <laughs> but but the moment you say no, I'm not going to do that. I thought, well, you know, these guys are just going to kill me, so I'll I'll just tell it to everyone. Yeah, I'll do whatever you want, but then I'll be selective as to what I. <laughs> what so my poor do. character was just going around saying, yeah, okay, I'll do that. Yeah, no problem, and then would never do any of it. <laughs> A compulsive liar. <laughs> Yeah, he became it, a compulsive liar, yeah. This isn't a renegade um, paragon system. You're either agreeable or you're dead. Well, I that's it. And I also had the perk. I think one of the perk, I forget what it's called now, but it, it, it essentially, you make a good first impression. I'll, I'll, look, I'll look it up in a second. But you make a good first impression. So people will all, I very rarely got the brush off from people straight away because I had a high intelligence stat, a high charisma stat, and then this perk. So everyone would talk to me and would want to give me something to do. My problem was I just couldn't, I, di- I couldn't write the checks. <laughs> I couldn't cast the checks I was writing. Yeah, there's no real room to play an arsehole here, which is, um, which is disappointing because no. that's one of the most fun things to do in any RPG. Yeah, you're just going to end up closing off all the quests to yourself if you do that. Yeah. Um, listen, we've been going for a while now. I think it's time for us to have a music break. So, Chris, as the guest, um, what what song would you like to choose? And we'll uh, we'll have a broad discussion of the music after we've played a song for our listeners. So, I'm a big fan of the music in this game, and it's it's a guy by by a guy, a guy called Mark Morgan. I mean, it's not it's not something really which it's not it's not melodic, but it's brilliantly atmospheric when you're playing the game. And one of my favourite locations in the game was the cathedral, the cathedral of the children of the cathedral, which is a funny little uh, self-referential joke that the game the game plays. And this track in particular is one which stood out to me. And uh, yeah, in, in a soundtrack of great atmospheric music, this is, for me, is one of my favourites.
Alrighty, so that was Acolytes of the New God, the uh, the soundtrack that played during the Cathedral. Now, I have to say, I have an extremely unfair opinion of this soundtrack, because I think that it's actually quite good, and it's quite nice and atmospheric, and generally on the show we've been way higher on the atmospheric soundtracks than we have on other soundtracks, so it's really weird for me to feel incredibly disappointed by it. And I kind of think that that stems from expectation more than anything, because I hadn't played Fallout 1 or 2, and I didn't realize that they, unlike the newer games, don't really lean into that, like, retro-future, cheesy 50s vibe that the newer games do. So I was expecting this game to be absolutely filled with, like, 40s and 50s music playing on your shitty radio. That was not the case. There's exactly, like, one song that plays during the opening and the ending, and the entire game this was kind of on my mind that I was annoyed because I fucking loved that kind of music to bits I adore it so I was super excited for a soundtrack like that but I didn't get it and so I kind of feel a bit down but I don't think it's really the game's fault in Fallout 3 and 4 then is there more of that kind of 50s pastiche in the music yes oh there's so much there's like a whole there's whole radio stations that just play it for you through your pip boy constantly okay um it's like the majority of the soundtrack is like that i'd say so yeah the sound the music in this game don't get me wrong is good and the one that you played the acolytes of the new god is probably one of the best um but you know i really i really missed uh that kind of cheesiness from the newer games um i love the music i mean it's a long-running joke on the show that we're big fans of ambient droning and every time there's an ambient soundtrack we're all about it whether it's quake or thief or any other game you care to mention and i think fallout one does it brilliantly um fallout one has a much darker atmosphere than any of the other fallout games um yeah it's a lot more serious than the modern fallout games and it doesn't lean into that 50s aesthetic at all. So I wasn't expecting this either, but I was, in, unlike James, I was pleasantly surprised. And I think there are no bad tracks on this soundtrack. I think they're all really good, and I think they all do a good job of bringing each area to life, whether it's the kind of spooky necropolis or um, or the kind of ominous uh cathedral i wasn't a big fan of the one that played in the trading hubs the one with a lot of strings uh Um, yeah no that's fair i was i didn't like that one much either i think the tracks that you hear it's probably like it's like a lot of music i think i think the track in the hub you probably hear the most because it's the area that most people will spend the most time in so yeah i think that's one which yeah, but if you were going to say, look, pick pick one that you would rather not listen to again, it probably would be the one I would go for <laughs> as well. Um, it probably just reflects the fact you hate a lot of it. One of the things I'd like to highlight about this soundtrack that's maybe a little bit different than some ambient soundtracks is its use of kind of fake background noise. It's not it's yeah. not literally background noise. It's more like they've taken background background noise and they've integrated it into the music. And my favorite track is that we'll play later is the opening of the vaults. And it's got all of the sounds that the vault dweller would have heard in the dwell in the vault turned into music. It's got a muffled intercom and it's got the clanking of machinery and even like the hitting of keys on a typewriter and like it it really sells the the type of place that you're in so yeah i i love this music yeah yeah i enjoyed it 
Yeah, so that sounds like a good place to jump into the world building because we just spoke about the differences between uh, Fallout 3 and 4 and New Vegas and the older Fallout game. So Patrick, you said you kind of like this more serious tone that the game takes? Yeah, so there's, there is a world of difference between the modern Fallouts and Fallout 1. Um, and it manifests in a couple of different ways. The The first one, which I think is a big change of style, is that the retro futurism that is the the time that came before the nuclear bombs launched seems to define the the nature of the experience you know you've got a lot more of these references to 50s culture in the new fallout games whereas i feel like this fallout game fallout 1 was very much about the society that came afterwards this mad max desperate struggle for survival that everyone was involved in and that's not to say that there wasn't a lot of history um seeded in the background it just felt like it was less about exploring the previous society and more about the current plot and the and the society that had you know haphazardly arisen from the ground um the other thing is that the modern fallout games really lean heavily into this humor angle like zany wacky humor and it ends up giving the experience this really light light feel like you could probably have uh someone who's 10 years old play fallout 4 and you know maybe maybe that's just me being too progressive but i don't think thematically there's anything really problematic about the stuff you see in the new fallout games I would not recommend anyone, you know, under the age of 18 play Fallout 1. Like it has some very gory and horrific imagery and some very serious themes. So, and I I I preferred that in the end to the uh to the zany fun humor of the modern Fallout games. It's interesting for me because I don't have anything to compare it to having not played even Fallout 2 for any great length of time. But from what I've read about the series and from what I've seen in in Fallout, I definitely think I would prefer the more light-hearted approach. I mean, I think what we'll see when we play two later this year is even that's where that that started. From what I've read, there was a definite because of the change of the the team between Fallout One and Fallout Two. When Chris Avalon came in on Fallout Two, he definitely wanted to lighten it up a little bit. And the guys wanted from from what I've I've read interviews, the likes of Tim Kane and 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 the rest of the guys who made Fallout, they were definitely going for this dark post apocalyptic vision of the future, and they absolutely pulled that off. I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I would not want my children playing Fallout for sure because there are some. It's brutal, and mm. there are some there's some horrific imagery. I didn't mind the tone of the world, but I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes when some of those more light-hearted elements come in down the line. For me, it kind of came across as a bit dry overall, which I don't think is necessarily a mark against the game, more of a preference thing, but I definitely prefer the tone of the newer Fallout. It felt like there was a dimension to the world-building that was missing um, when Mm. I played Fallout 1. It felt very... Fallout as a series now has a very specific personality to it that to me this game didn't have. And while it has its own, you know, dark style, it did feel a bit like it was missing something. I definitely prefer the newer tone of the series, although I do think that there is something to be said for having these more 
I guess, natural character interactions. Yeah, I I mean, okay, let me let me be be straight. I am in this modern day absolutely fatigued with post-apocalyptic stuff. Like it seems like everything is dystopian nowadays in one form or another, particularly in the science fiction sphere. And you know, I'm a huge fan of Ian M. Banks, um, one of my favorite sci-fi authors, particularly because he takes these utopian ideas and he creates, you you know, this positive vision of the future, which is so rare in sci-fi. Um, but I found, have always found the modern Fallout games to be wildly inconsistent with their humor and their tone and their, you know, degree of levity to the point where it doesn't feel immersive or like a real world. And I mean, that's fine. It's It's fun. Like, it's a fun place to be. But in the end, I respect the craftsmanship and I enjoy this idea of building a real place more than I enjoy the idea of building a fun place. And um, all of my favorite environmental storytelling, I mean, these places don't need to be exciting for them to be incredibly interesting to explore. And I loved, uh, I loved uncovering you know, all of the secrets that are hidden away in all of the science facilities that kind mm. of uncovered on a deeper level the the world that came before and how it's, you know, led to yeah. the events of the main game. And it's just not something... When, when you visit a cool vault in, you know, the new Fallout games, they've got all these cool vaults which have these weird experiments, which are cool, mm. but they're all played for laughs, you know? In this game, it's played as psychological horror. And mm. at the end of the day, I prefer this more grounded, realistic tone because it, you know, it treats nuclear war very seriously. Maybe maybe it's not necessarily the tone that kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Maybe the aesthetic, it's more accurate to say. Because, for example, a game like Bioshock 1 uh, is a mostly serious game, but still has this really cool like art deco aesthetic throughout the entire experience right okay good point yeah where Mm. i think that fallout 4 i like that 3 and 4 lean into that 50s aesthetic like they do although kind of like you i'm not as high on the execution it's more i guess the direction that i'm in love with not you know the finished product and i think that that kind of thing was missing here in fallout 1 for me don't you think the way post-apocalyptic stuff it generally across pop culture is portrayed is just entirely humorless i mean mean, it seems to and and i think fallout one is guilty of this as well i mean this the nuclear apocalypse didn't happen 10 years ago or five years ago these aren't people who experienced it these are all except maybe i think some of the mutants may have had their lives extended by by what's happened to them but generally, the people who you meet are second-generation post-apocalyptus, if mm. you like. Um, so, so they're they're not they're not people who knew what the world was like before, and they they are either out to murder you, want you to murder somebody else, want to rip you off, or are generally just unpleasant characters. And I do I think you know when you think of the likes of the obvious one, you know, The Walking Dead, there is. It's almost entirely humorless, and it just seems to assume that if if society went through such a massive thing like this, that everyone, people would just stop, everyone would stop being nice to other human beings and would forget the fact that you can smile and laugh at stuff. 
And and although from what from what you've said, Patrick, about the later Fallout games maybe taking it too far and becoming overly playful. I mean, I don't like the sound of you know what's happening in the vaults turning into some playful stuff. I think there is a balance, but I do think that we are so oversaturated with post-apocalyptic works of fiction, which are just horribly dark and humorless. And I'm not sure, you know, who knows what society would be like if we went through a nuclear apocalypse. I mean, nobody does, but I'm pretty sure that there would still be laughter and humor once people got used to it. He says, with <laughs> without knowing exactly what it would be yeah. like. This kind of reminds me of a conversation I had last week because I went to my my high school reunion last week and I got uh, into touch with people I hadn't seen for a long time. Um, and one of the people I spoke to was now working at the police. And something that I've noticed for people that work in these um, positions where they have to deal with a lot of you know, sensitive topics all the time, like I w- spoke with somebody who worked in child services once, that the people who work for these organizations always develop this completely fucked sense of humor in order to mm. cope with their situation. Um, and it's always extremely dark humor that would kind of like silence mm. the room if they said it outside of their office. But I was <laughs> expecting that. I always expect that kind of thing in these you know, these uh, post-apocalyptic scenarios because they're in these horrible situation. They need to develop a way, you know, of coping with it. And I don't think the super wacky, goofy humor of Fallout 3 and 4 is the right style of humor, but there is a kind of like dark humor that they could lean into here without changing the tone. More like Lisa, right? Although Lisa, that's actually a bad example because that's also a lot of goofy humor. Um, I think there's non-goofy humor in Lisa, and that is basically what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah I, 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 broadly speaking, I think you guys make a good point. Like, it's all very well for it to be grim and horrible, but it definitely does lean into there being like a perfunctory way in the ways that people interact with you. Like, it's very functional. It's like, can you kill this person or can you kill this person? And there are some friendly people, mm. but it's kind of, friendly and boring instead of being friendly and interesting um i think that the a few of the talking heads have some good humor to them and the kind of humor i like but you know what you're right this could have been better written to better capture that grim humor as opposed to being just the dry everything is horrible tone which which it's more more going for so yeah that's an area it could have improved in um but if I have to choose between grim and dark and consistent and wacky and zany, I'm going to go grim and dark and consistent every day of the week. <laughs> Can we talk about the character interactions while we're on the subject? Um, so, like, in the modern Fallout games, when you talk to somebody, it, like, zooms in on their face and you talk to them. That's kind of present here, but I think... Um, it's like a novelty here, or it was supposed to be a novelty at the time of this game's release, because there's like a handful of characters throughout the entire game where they have animated faces that talk to you during the conversations, and then mm. most of them, you know, have this zoomed out picture of them in a top-down sense, like they didn't bother to animate them. And I reckon this is something that, when the game came out, was absolutely mind-blowing. Like, it's great that there are so many animated characters with, you know, uh, voice acting and facial animation to give them personality. It's kind of funny doing the show from the modern perspective, because this is kind of something that's just expected now, right? Like, it's more obvious when characters 
characters didn't have this than when they did have it. Yeah. It's interesting you say that. I read a couple of contemporary reviews of Fallout, and and, and what both of those reviews did, one was from PC Gamer in the UK, and I can't remember where the other one was from, uh, maybe GameSpot. And they both remarked that actually the NPCs in the game are generally uninteresting. Mm. So it may well be even at the time it was considered, and, and I don't know about you guys, but other than one, which was Harold in the hub, I struggle to remember really. Was that, was that the mutant? Yes. Yeah, that was the mutant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah he was very memorable. Yeah. But other than that, there are and maybe the the chat in the end game with the guy in the cathedral, the leader of guy who takes you down to, to speak to the leader of the of the the, oh, the lieutenant, the who whoever. speaks in a there's a lot of British accents in this game, so Yeah, the voice acting generally is good. I mean I've got yeah. no no problem with the voice acting. It's a bit sometimes it's a bit on the nose, but generally I thought the voice acting for a nineteen ninety seven game. Did you is good. um did you meet the leader of the Thieves Guild? Because that's where I was like, This is fucking ridiculous. The, yes. the rest of the time I was yeah, pretty stupid. happy, but then the <laughs> Thieves Guild leader, I'm like, excuse me, <laughs> is this <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's good ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah, my favorite character was the guard outside of the Brotherhood of Steel, um, who okay. you talk who you talk to him, and he kind of like you're like I want to join. And he's like yeah yeah. Well, go to this highly radioactive zone, <laughs> and then if you can get something from there, we'll let you in. But like his facial animation and the voice acting really conveyed that he didn't think you could do it, um, and he kind yeah. of like spoke down to you. I thought he was like. One of the one of like two characters in the whole game that I really liked um, is having a lot of personality. Um, one character that I quite liked that neither of you have brought up is Seth, who's the leader of the ghouls. And the main reason I like them is he had yeah. a particular dialect and way of speaking that kind of shifted between being almost poetic and then to being very abrupt. And I found the juxtaposition between the odd way he was speaking to his manner which if you speak to him too many times he's like right time to die quite interesting yeah and the way he spoke and yeah. delivered information i thought was um was quite enjoyable to listen to there wasn't there wasn't a lot of it because he wasn't interested in speaking to you for long but um he made an impact on me yeah i mean i thought the dialogue system generally i really didn't get on with at all so and it's probably partly that i played it wrong i mean i'm a big fan of point and click adventure games and my my approach here is i want to see everything that these people have to say so i will redo dialogues over and over again and try all the different paths which i do think now is probably the wrong way to play this i mean you should role play as you see it and and carry on on that track but did you guys use the ask me about or the tell me about button where you could kind of where you brings up a text parser i always kept forgetting to use it honestly i just used the options that were there i um i i tried using it mainly to like like early on i was like man i need a rope maybe i can ask people about rope nothing it's i don't uh, know about that (laughs) it seems to mainly be uh there for almost like fluff purposes like you can if you go to a city you can type in the name of all the people in the city and all of the named organizations in the city and you'll get a line of dialogue about it but for the most part it's not very it's it's useless and i think that they needed to do a better job integrating that information into the primary dialogue system for sure 
Yeah. Um, the only thing I could say in its credit is that you never, well, in my experience, you didn't ever need to use that to get essential information out of a character. But they it didn't even recognise two words. So if you asked the leader of Shady Sands about Shady Sands, he would say, I don't know anything about that. Oh I mean, how that, how that made the final cut of this game, I have no idea. It's pointless. Um, another note on the dialogue system is that there's this... It's almost like a logistical issue, and I think it's something that people who design these dialogue systems have gotten better with in time. There isn't like a a proper layering of the dialogue. So you'll yeah, ask them great. about something, and then the conversation will end, and you have to initiate a new conversation with exactly. them to follow the yes. next line. Yeah, Whereas yeah. modern dialogue systems, will they'll keep having these return to you know the top yeah. of this topic, and it allows yeah. you to more naturally absorb all this information. It felt very random to me having a conversation with someone trying to hit all the dialogue information. Yeah, and and, yeah. and again, like you say, with Set, the leader of the ghouls, if you don't select what you think or what you want to be the correct dialogue choice, if I think you only get two or three goes before he starts shooting you. So again, it goes back to the whole you're having to save before every conversation because you have to make sure you know each dialogue is like a little puzzle if you know you want to get you know that person has information it's just about making sure you select the correct dialogue options to get it out of them it's it can be really frustrating yeah i want to be blunt here um i think that the dialogue with a lot of the characters was probably the most disappointing part of the game for me um, there wasn't a heap to it. Like, a lot of characters didn't have that much to say. Some of them did. There was, like, one or two that I enjoyed talking to. But specifically, your party members in, like, in a party-based RPG, they had, like, nothing. I was so shocked by this. Um, like, you get your first party member by giving him a pittance, and then he stays for you forever, and never says anything to you for the rest of the game. <laughs> I was like, I was shocked by this. I thought that there would be more characterization for these characters. He is quite useful in the hub because he will. Are you talking about Ian, who you pick up in Shady Sands? Yeah. Mm. So he will, when you're wandering around the hub and you wander into the various buildings, he will. He will. There will be a line of something. Like if you if you walk into the Fargo Traders, for instance, he will say, "Oh, this guy, this place is run by such and such, and they're they're a good bunch, or something like that." So, but beyond the hub, I don't know whether the game because if you can if you speak to him, you only get the options of asking him about either Junktown or the hub. It's almost as if the game is saying, "Right, okay, well, the, he will take you to the hub and then kill him off because he's completely useless <laughs> beyond that." <laughs> I felt like the it must have been that they wanted you to role play your party members as well because like when you talk to them there is like two dialogue options three are related to combat like stay close to yeah, me yeah. use your best use weapon your best weapon yeah but there wasn't they didn't have their own like quest lines or character dialogue no. or personal stories or Narrative anything arc. it was <laughs> no. it was like insane it was like people play RPGs for the characters and exactly. this game has like some guys that follow you around and aren't very useful in combat and just <laughs> shoot you in the back constantly. Well, this this is more of a mechanical thing, but the other reason why they're really uninteresting is that you don't control them. You have zero control over the character. Yeah. And I think yeah. that with RPGs, part of getting invested in these characters is actually using them. And 
I've always yeah. said this is the big reason why Warcraft 3 like stands head and shoulders above pretty much any RTS in terms of storytelling it's because the char- the characters that you see interacting in the story you get to control all of them and you get to fight them on the battlefield if you're just if they're just there as a guy well you're going to care less about them than if you're personally controlling them and that's that's just how it is yeah and i think it's customization too right like my favorite game ff10 you have a party of like six people and you get to do all their talent trees and you get to feel good interested on how you've built your character and that's not present here at all because you can't even give them new armor or anything and most of them can only use like a dagger or a pistol so you can like give them a weapon you have no control on you know if they get stronger or weaker or anything you can't control them in combat they just kind of like follow you about and don't talk to you it's really really disappointing honestly yeah they are so two-dimensional they are completely uninteresting however for me they weren't pointless because (laughs) in the in the early game i wouldn't have got through yeah things like the rad scorpion cavern which is one of the side quests you get from shady sands it i would not have got through any of the any combat at all in the early game if it wasn't for the fact that i had my mate ian who I got from Shady Sands, and from Junktown, the dog, dog meat. You know, they save my bacon. Uh, in fact, I would run away from combat and just let those guys do it. But <laughs> every time I see, every time I seem to get near, Ian would shoot me in the back anyway. So I thought, well, I'll just leave them to it. And they basically handle combat automatically in the early game. See, that's super interesting because it's a way for the developers, and maybe this is what was intended when they're like, well, you can be bad at combat, you just need to rely on recruiting followers, and this is how you're going to have to engage with combat. Yeah, I kind of relied on them a lot early game too because I had Ian and Dogmeat as well to begin with. Um, And then once my character became able to move and attack in the same turn, which was (laughs) a long road... Um, I ended up dismissing all of my companions near the end of the game because they ended up being more of a liability because of jinxed my trait. Because constantly they would miss and their shots would be redirected to me, um, or they would knock me down and cause me to lose a turn, or they would, you know, uh, stand in front of me and get fire directed towards me. They were such a liability in the end game. (laughs) So I just decided, you know, I can't be bothered trying to keep them alive anymore. You guys go home. The, the other thing I tried to do was use Ian as a bit of a pack mule and, and give him stuff that I couldn't carry. But, of course, you can't trade with your, in inverted commas, party members. So the only way of getting stuff you can give in the usual barter screen, you can give Ian weapons or anything else. But you can't take them back from him unless you steal from him. And my steal skill was so low that the only way I could steal from him without being caught and have him kill me was to save Scum and, you know, one in ten it would work. And that felt like a painful way to do it. It sounds like his working is intended, you know, that's... (laughs) But how bad the fact that you can't trade between a member of... Surely... And they do fix this in Fallout 2, I've read. But you... Why not? Why can't I just say, Ian, here, hold this Uzi. You can use it for a bit and I'll have it back now, please. Seems perfectly reasonable. Were you guys also as surprised as I was at how two-dimensional they were? Because 
I was convinced that all of these old CRPGs had like really interesting party members because I've played, you know, the start of Baldur's Gate 2 and they always talk between, you know, the party and they talk out loud as you're walking yeah. around and they yeah. each have like a lot of personality and that's just in the tutorial. And then in this game, there was like actually nothing that was really surprising. I um I played the game without companions. I, I came into Fallout 1 knowing that it was a... Um, I, I thought, I didn't even know there were companions in this game. I assumed you only had <laughs> control of one character from start to finish. Um, that's what happens in Underrail. You just control one character from start to finish. And when I play Fallout New Vegas and when I dabbled in Outer Worlds, I don't want any companions cramping on my FPS style. I just find them annoying. <laughs> um, even when I play Metal Gear Solid Five, I don't really like having Quiet as my companion because... Mm. She keeps shooting enemies that I want to deal with. So I, um, I'm i not as disappointed by this as you because my expectations just weren't there. Uh, they're basically functionally like mercenaries, like generic NPC companions. And I was like, well, that's fine for the people who want them. But their omission didn't bother me specifically for Fallout 1. I think if I was playing a, um, a Baldur's Gate or a you know, mm. Planescape Torment, or even like Icewind Dale, if I was picking up... Oh no, Icewind Dale, you pre-make a party. So if I was playing one of those, it, it would bother me a lot more, but this wasn't a major issue for me. You could say the same about the Vault Dweller himself, though, couldn't you, in terms of the two-dimensional nature? I mean, you you find... The game tells you very little about any kind of... And I know this is a role-playing game, and it will, you can't impose a huge backstory on the Vault Dweller because we've essentially made our own character. But it feels like here there's no there's no ability to build any kind of meaningful emotional attachment to your character other than the fact you're running him around the map because none of the, the world seems really disconnected. He's from the secretive vault. He's got no personality within the world other than, you know, the, the, the karma system. It just felt like there was never any real meaty emotional hook to get me really pulling for the fact of what I was trying to do. Yeah. One of the things that I thought really like right at the start of the game is that the overseer says, you're the only one who can save us. And I was like, yeah. why? Why? Like, why what, what is the reason you're choosing me? There exactly. was just nothing. Yeah. And he's just like, get out there, go save us. Like, why? <laughs> Um, yeah. And I think yeah. newer games, like when I played Divinity Original Sin 2, you can pick preset characters and roleplay as them, but then this char these characters have special dialogue that let you play as them as people, um, yeah. and that lets you, you know, have interesting characters, or, you know, you can still make an interesting character that you believe in. I never for once believed in my character other than, you know, the, the stories I was trying to make up in my head but wasn't yeah. really working for me. I kind yeah. of think that when you take a tabletop RPG and you make it, you know, into a computer game, you lose like the infinite possibilities that role playing yeah. gives you access to. Yeah. And I don't think that this game did enough to, you know, uh, make up for that loss. That's a really good point. Yeah, I I, um, I, I agree. I, I also agree. Um, the I think Chris raised a good point with the lack of an emotional hook, because I've gone on and on about how in love with the world I am. But mostly, yes, your interactions with the characters are very bare and functional. And the way your character interacts with people is bare and functional. Some of that's mechanical, but a lot of that is that there's not much creativity 
in the writing of the things that your character is saying. We're not seeing anything close to modern RPGs in this regard, and we're not even seeing what something like The Witcher does, where it interprets your actions through the lens of a character. There's just nothing. You're kind of going from place to place, being told what to do, and if you're not doing it, you're getting shot in the head. Yeah, the choices also play into this a bit because I found them very morally polarized in almost all situations it was like there is a evil drug dealer or someone who's trying to make you kill somebody you can either do it for him or you can tell the police there Mm. isn't like there is no shades of gray which your character can play into the choices are always like evil or not evil i never felt like something i think i think it's in the outer worlds um early on there's this quest where there are these two factions and you meet each of the factions separately and you get to know them and then you have to make a choice because one of them has to live and one has to die and you get to choose and it's a difficult decision because there's pros and cons of each faction and your relationships with them in this game i always felt like when there was stuff like that there was an obviously morally correct choice and there was you know never any other option that i would choose so i always kind of felt railroaded into one decision although maybe that's just me yeah i think that's right and i spent the first half of this game wishing i was playing something else because i i did i felt the first half of this game thinking where's the plot here now, I'm used to an adventure game or a JRPG which funnels you along a linear plot, gives you a, a wonderful experience, exactly what the, the story the designers want to tell. Whereas here, there is plot there. But for the first half of the game, I, I couldn't find it. And I wasn't trying hard enough to find it. But then something clicked around the time I got to the hub when... I kind of got used to that. And I thought, right, you know, there are stories here. There are stories in this world. But the, the, the mainline story, forget about it. It's really, you know, it's not very interesting. You get the wood chip, then you wipe out the reasons. It doesn't make a lot of sense, and it's not very interesting. But within the world, if you look hard enough for it, there is a lot of story there. And there are stories within the world that actually are quite interesting. They may not involve you as a character, but they are they are there. You know, for instance, in the Glow, which is probably the only true classic dungeon in the whole game, there's so much stuff in there about what you were saying, Patrick, the world building stuff about what happened in the immediate aftermath of, of the war and how they initially adapted in that in, in in the set in the initial settlements after the after the war and after the, the Holocaust. I mean that of the nuclear holocaust. I mean that that was that was what I was there for. You know, it's that world building stuff that that's what will make me play Fallout 2 and Fallout 3 and Fallout 4. It won't be the main quest that I've been on. I will probably, I find it very forgettable, the, the, the actual stuff that you do. But the, the, the world generally, you come away from it thinking, I want to see more of this. You know, I want to see what happens in 80 years time when Fallout 2 starts. And I want to see where it goes from there because the, there's just enough there in the world that, that will get you coming back. This is one of the critical differences in storytelling that I love to bang on about. And it's something that I have a problem with a lot of JRPGs and it's something that I have a lot of problems with anime. It's this over-exposition. And I think you mm. can say that Fallout 1, particularly in that first half, suffers from a lack of 
exposition. It's it's a bit too minimalist. And even if you do go digging around the corners, there's still not a lot to find. But the joy of uncovering a world that's been sitting there and has naturally built up, um, like in Dark Souls, something that I love. The story of Dark Souls to me is a, is a masterpiece, but it's not there at all unless you're really looking for it and trying to understand the history of how everything came together. And yeah, this this is how Fallout wants to tell its story. It wants to set up this situation where an apocalypse happened and then people tried to struggle to rebuild. And it's up to you to kind of dig around the corners to figure out all the things that are making the world feel real. And they're there if you go looking for them. I loved the glow like Chris did. I thought this was a brilliant example of, you know, something where you can go there and there's heaps of, you know, passive story information that you can get that in your mind you can build up to this bigger picture. And that was awesome. But I felt that that wasn't present for the most of the game. Um, Like, the glow was excellent. And then I had this feeling that, you know, they've taken this minimalistic approach too far in my mind. Like, I felt like even when I was digging for lots of story, I was still finding it difficult to find much. Like, in the entire game, I found, like, four data logs to read about the world and i didn't get that many interesting conversations with people and i was trying to talk to everybody um i did find out after reading online that if your intelligence and charisma are too low you just lose a lot of dialogue options Mm. um so that might have been the case which i really don't like because you know this game does something really cool where if you have like one intelligence you get new dialogue options and your character gets to interact with the world differently and to me that's the perfect way to do an rpg stat system like having low stats gives different gameplay it doesn't take gameplay away but for my character i felt like my stats were low but not low enough for that kind of thing so i was just missing out on a lot of the world building i mean kind of james i mean it's okay for low stats missing out on certain gameplay things i think you're i think you're going a bit too far if your stats are bad you can't do certain things and that's okay like if if you've got a low intelligence then you can't do things that intelligent people can do like that's that's a fine a fine thing to have right yeah that's fine um but because that makes you like that makes you try to do the same task in a different way see like it changes your experience whereas in a lot of cases i just felt like i was losing out entirely well you had 10 um, strength and 8 endurance so i mean <laughs> if, if you that's want true. if you want the good dialogue options you got to pay for them man like that's that's just how it goes i hear what james is saying there because i think if 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 the game gave you certain there was a certain part of the world or there were certain tasks which you could only get if you were a super physical brute for instance then you could compensate from the fact okay well i know i'm missing out on certain dialogue trees and and that's okay but that's okay because the people who are experiencing that are not experiencing this and i can go and do this and this is really good fun I think that would be, okay, well, that makes sense that I can't do this, but at least I've got this. Whereas I think if I'd gone through this in a high-strength build, you know, from some of the conversations I have, particularly in the Brotherhood, which is where a lot of this passive world-building stuff comes in, as well as the Glow, because there's a group there called the Scribes who are devoted to just a chart in the history of, of the world. I, I don't know, because I played the high-intelligence build, 
But I had loads of good conversations there and ended up getting quite a few hollow discs of, of, of really exposition dumps, which maybe, you know, James didn't see any of that. And then you would miss out on really the big thing that I took away from it in terms of plot. Um, I think part of it is that there's just not many places in this game. So we, we yeah, didn't small. explain it, but the way the um, the world works, it is an open world RPG, but not really in the way you think. So you're either in a settlement, like you're at a town, uh, but most, or you're traveling on the overworld, which is like a grid map. And what you do is you select point A on the map and you wander around to point B and you can have random overworld encounters, but you're not traveling through through a place in the way you would in a modern Fallout game or even in something like Baldur's Gate where you have these screens that don't represent your entire journey. Sorry, which don't encompass your entire journey, but represent the transition between. There's none of that. So you have no room for world building along the way. You can't have a location that is a gas station, and this is a gas station on the overworld. There's none of that. You're either in a town or you've been teleported to a specific encounter or you're in a random encounter, and those are your only three options. And I think that one of the things the modern Fallout games do well is they have places like here is a supermarket and it has been overrun with X people, and you can kind of write a story and an encounter for that location. And the limited locations means you don't get a lot of that incidental world building that exists in other games. Yeah, and also I think the thing that bothered me about the world generally was that it feels very disconnected. So one place, the world occasionally, I think there was one instance where in Junktown I'd got rid of gizmo so i'd taken out gizmo in junktown and when i got to the hub i think one of the one of the police or one of the caravan drivers had said oh we hear that gizmo is no more that's great and and i thought that's really good you know that is the world reacting to what i'm doing elsewhere in the world but it didn't happen enough and it just felt like each of these town city settlements were just their individual worlds with no real link to what was going on elsewhere you know for for example when you got the water chip and i went back to vault 13 with the water chip if you speak to people on the way to the conversation with the overseer they will say oh how are you getting on with the water chip and your dialogue options are something like not very good or i haven't got it yet when i'm walking <laughs> around with the water chip you know and it's it the game just didn't react to the fact that i found the water chip elsewhere and there may be examples where it does do it. I've heard stories that if you if the game runs on far enough then and you haven't sorted out the necropolis in in that you haven't killed the super mutants like Seth asked you to, then the super mutants kill all the ghouls and all the ghouls are dead, including the ones that are in the sewers, and the super mutants are everywhere. So there are examples of, of it, the locations within the game changing as the game goes on but it doesn't feel like they are changing in response to something else that's happened in the world it's almost like a a scripted change yeah the world doesn't feel alive right like it feels very fixed in place um and to be fair i don't think that most games really accomplish that feeling of the world being alive 
Uh, most games, you've got all these hubs with people just hanging out. And most games, the worlds don't change. Do you, do you have any specific examples of a game that does this well, Chris? No, I was just trying to think as you said that. And you're probably right. I think what modern games do is give the illusion that the world is is changing on almost an emergent level to what you do. And I can't, I can't even think of an example of that. But I haven't come away from a game thinking... This is just a collection of towns that have no real link to each other, except for the fact that they are in this shared world. I mean, nobody seems to know anybody else. I suppose the caravan traders who do go from town to town may be an exception to that. But it's just it just feels like such an, a lack of connection between the locations. You're just hopping from one to the other. There is a lack of connection point, between the places. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe it's intended. You could be right. No, no, I just mean that you're not travelling between the places. You cut to the overworld map. I think that yeah. if you physically had to travel between those places, it gives a sense yeah. of space and distance and realness. You're you're essentially teleporting from town to town when you yeah. when you travel around. So I, I think that yeah, that's that's why it feels all the more obvious. But I think most games yeah. are probably about similar in terms of um, even modern games in terms of their reactiveness. You you have stuff like the original Deus Ex, every time you go back to Unatco HQ, things change. Yeah. You keep breaking into the same things and then they get all locked up again and then people complain about it. Deus Ex probably gives you that illusion far better. But um, yeah, I, I wouldn't count this as a major strike against the game just because... I don't think modern games necessarily do this that much better, except perhaps, you know, covering up the scratch marks a little better. Yeah. The um the day-night cycle broke my immersion so much. Like, you can just stand in place waiting for, like, a week for the next caravan to come, and, like, all the NPCs will wait with you. They won't move. They'll just stay <laughs> still the whole time. I think a lot of modern RPGs have their NPCs kind of react to the time of day. Uh, or at least move around the town a bit more naturally. It felt very static. They won't talk to you at night. A lot of them will be like, piss off, come back in the morning. <laughs> Every time night fell, I would rest until the morning because I could not see a thing walking <laughs> around these towns in the dark. I couldn't find the doors. I couldn't see. I don't nice. know whether that's my... Is that my 40-year-old eyesight failing me? I don't know. I... May, and maybe it's realistic, but every time I felt, okay, all right, well, I'm going to snooze until midday the next day then. And then, yeah, I just couldn't, couldn't see anything. I did the exact same thing. I snoozed to noon every time. I actually was kind of annoyed that there wasn't, like, you couldn't select a date to snooze to. You just yeah. kind of had to keep clicking noon, 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 noon <laughs> until you were at the date yeah. you wanted. Yeah, this this would have come out in the in the days when having a day night cycle in and yeah. of itself was revolutionary. So no one I questioned the functionality of it. They're just like, ooh, a day night cycle. Yeah, it goes dark. How cool. <laughs> one other little UI nitpick that I have, and I actually quite liked the interface to Fallout One. Something that I love about games is when they have these really stylized UIs that kind of fit the game. And this one has the you know like rusty metal with the big red yeah. buttons to click, and the little fold-out tray that flips with what item you're holding. I loved all that stuff. I loved the presentation of the world map with the little buttons and the scribbled-on notes. That was great. Something that really upset me though was in the barter screen when you're trying to trade money with people 
um, you often have to trade several thousand bottle caps worth of currency. But when you're selecting how much money to trade, you can only choose three digits. So yeah. if you want to trade 15,000, you have to go 999999999 like 10 times in a row. It's like the technology just wasn't there for a fourth digit, guys. I'm sorry. You were a bit wealthier than us, James, remember? So that is true. I I did have like I did have infinite money, but yeah, so uh lots of lots of doing that for me. The whole UI, I I, I like the aesthetic of it. Like you say, James, I think it it really suits it, it, that's maybe where it does seem to lean in a little bit to that retro futuristic pastiche, but the mm. functionality I <laughs> hate it. it. It's worse than console UIs, and I hate console it's horrible. UIs. Yeah, you can see four items at a time in your inventory. Is that right? Four? It's something. Yeah, if that. It's yeah, something it low like four. that. Yeah. And you can't change the orders of them. Uh, I th maybe you can if you pick them up. But I always ran into this situation where my armor and weapon would be at the bottom of the list. Yeah. And if you put your armor on, then the list would snap back to the top and you'd have yeah. to click. Because my Europe, my inventory was huge because I had so much carry weight. So I had to like sit there clicking down for like a minute to get to the bottom. See, it wasn't a downside um, for Chris at all because he only had four items not in his inventory. At all. That's true. <laughs> but, but the, the, the perfect one thing, size. The real struggle I had, so in, in the barter screen, remember that my carry weight was very low. In the barter screen, if, if you're trying to, and this took me the longest time to figure out, and it's only right near the end of the game I realised what was going on. If your inventory is over the carry weight and you're trying to barter for something which would push you over that weight, it doesn't tell you that. All it says is, that you, the character says, well, that's not a fair trade. And so I'm thinking, what? Well, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to buy this handgun. I'm giving you twice what it's worth. Why won't you accept it from oh, that's me? That's atrocious. And then I realised it was it was because it would push me over the carry weight, so I'd have to dispose of some stuff before I could I could buy it. It was really driving me crazy, and I was thinking, why is it just random? I was googling it. I thought it was a bug, and then on one of the forums, it, it said that it would it's because you're over the carry weight, and it was right near the end of the game. I figured that out. I, I think no matter what <laughs> happens, you've had a very unique experience with this game, Chris. I think most, so. most people would have played the game with an inventory, but it seems like you haven't. So there you go. Um, did you <laughs> no, guys? What was in his hands? <laughs> um, did you guys want to have another music break? Uh, I think. I think we've covered most of the notes about world and story. Unless one of you wants to jump in, I'd like to have a music break, then get into. The most interesting part of this game, the combat, which I think will be a hefty discussion topic. So, any other notes on story, world, characters, etc.? Um, I don't have anything major. Maybe I'll think of something later. Um, I might steal this music break just so we have a uh, we do a little alternating because I'm going to pick the one song in the entire soundtrack that I did love. Um, because it did fall into that like old theme, um, and I'm gonna pick maybe by the Ink Spots, which is you know a great soundtrack, and the way it plays in the end of the game is perfect. I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, I loved it, and I loved the way it you know it was it was the kind of song that I wanted to hear all throughout the game. So here's maybe by the Ink Spots. <laughs> me when 
maybe it's definitely my favorite song on the soundtrack i wish there was plenty more stuff like that and i'm hoping that fallout 2 will lean more heavily into that as well um patrick you wanted to talk a bit about the gameplay now um specifically the combat i think yes absolutely want to talk about the combat because regardless of what your intentions are in playing this game at some stage you're gonna have to kill something and uh, so combat is an important and big part of Fallout, whether you want it to be or not. So the way combat and game the gameplay works is that most of the time when you're playing Fallout, you're moving around in real time. Now, it might be technically turn time, but it, it's functionally real time. You're, you're running around freely and can, you know, examine items in the um, items in the environment, etc., etc., um, however, whenever combat is initiated, either by you shooting someone, you being shot, or you pressing the enter combat button, you enter turn-based combat. The way this works is that uh, it uses an action point system. Um, you have a number of action points that are determined by your agility and by maybe some perks you've got. Um, usually you're going to have between 5 to 10, uh, and you'll have, or, you know, less if you have low agility, but most of the time for most yeah. characters, between 5 to 10 action points. And your actions consist of uh, moving, shooting, doing an aimed shot, and certain weapons have specific types, special types of firing you can do. You can also access your inventory and do a weapon switch because you can hold two weapons at once. Um, there's stuff like uh, you can use some skills inside of combat, like going into stealth has uh, action point. But for most of, most of the time, what you're doing is you're shooting people, moving, and using some stim packs to heal up. Um, let's let's start with you, James. What what did you think of the of this combat system, this turn based combat system? Did you find it fun and engaging, or was it a complete disaster? So. We spoke about a bit about this before with the skill points thing, this idea that if you invest heavily into, like, speechcraft, you get, you know, more opportunities in speech when talking to people. There's more gameplay opportunities, right? Um, so theoretically, if you invest heavily into combat, which I did, you'd have more options during combat and you'd have, a you know, a more exciting time during combat. Um, with my character, who was, I'd say, like 90% combat focused, I found the combat in this game to be incredibly boring. Like you said, you have, you can move, you can attack, 
um, access your inventory and use a stim pack. 90% of combat with my character boiled down to am I in melee range of a dude? If so, hit him. If not, walk closer and then maybe use a stim pack occasionally. That was this, my strategy for the entire game up until maybe the last, very last level. Um, when I finally started abusing line of sight to get people to walk closer to me. But other than that, like, I never I never felt like I made any interesting tactical decisions in this game. Chris, thoughts? That's interesting, because I thought that my feelings on the combat were driven by the fact that my character couldn't do it, or wasn't <laughs> very good at it. And I thought that I was getting a very lesser limited combat experience because of the way I'd built my character. But from what James has just said, maybe maybe it is the combat is just not very interesting. So for me, I found I knew it was turn based combat going into it, but I still initially found the switch from real time to turn based a little jarring. There's a lot going on in combat behind the scenes, like in most RPGs. I mean, the manual goes into great detail about how all of the various, you know, the, the time of day, the lighting situation in the environment, each of your stats and your perks and your skills go into uh, calculating the odds of success and the dice rolls involved. So there's a lot going on. But actually, in terms of the moment-to-moment stuff, I mean, it is really just... Do I have enough action points to attack? If so, attack. By the end of it, my small guns skill was at about 175%. So I could compensate for the fact that I wasn't strong enough to hold any real small gun at all. And I would almost always have a 95% mm. chance of, of success. And I would just shoot for the eyes every single time. And I didn't do anything other than that. And sometimes I did a little bit of damage and occasionally I'd get a critical and do loads. And I suppose it was just, well, let's just see how the luck holds out. And it didn't feel strategic at all. Um, Unfortunately, you're both completely correct. The combat in this game sucks and it's probably the worst part of Fallout by considerable margin. Um. Part of the problem, and there are many problems, which I will be delighted to go into, but probably the number one problem that the <laughs> that the game's tactical combat has is that the action points to fire your guns is too high. Uh, if you have... I had nine agility, so my character was really, really, really meant to be good at this. Um, firing most guns when you aimed them costs six points wow really yeah when you yeah. aim guns it costs yeah. six points a, a normal shot will cost four and when you get into the super late game i eventually um put invest a lot of points into energy weapons and i had a plasma rifle that only took i think five points to aim and four points for a regular shot which was really really good but but for the vast majority of the game it was six points to aim and then i could move three squares and that just eliminates any sort of tactical fidelity to the situation. What they needed to do is they needed to um, either, th there's a number of ways they could have done this, but they needed to make it so however they calculated the points and the actions that you could take more discrete actions in a turn cycle. 
whether that was firing twice yeah. or firing, then moving, then firing, or would allow you to fire, then throw a grenade, then duck behind cover. However they needed to do it, they need to give you and your enemies more discrete actions each and every movement cycle. The fact that the combat is this simple and you don't get to control your party members in combat was like... I found it kind of insulting, to be honest. Like, I had four action points um, at the start of the game, and it cost three to do an attack and four four to access my inventory and four to do an aimed attack. Um, so for the first, like, eight hours of the game, uh, when it came to my turn, I either moved, used an item, attacked, or accessed my inventory, never at the same time, um, until... I got mm. my second perk, which gave me two free movement squares at the start of every turn. And at that point, I could then move and attack at the same time. And that was like, my character <laughs> is so strong now. Yeah. And then later in the game, you gain access to this <laughs> doctor who does operations for extremely expensive prices. Yeah. And he lets you raise each stat except luck by one. Um, I got all of them because I was loaded. Um, and at that point, with that extra agility and all the drugs I was guzzling down, um, I had like seven action points so I could actually like attack twice. And then when I could attack twice, I felt like like huge progression in my character, but it still wasn't that interesting from a gameplay point of view. What I will say is that I think that having a simpler combat mechanics works only if you're controlling multiple characters and the first XCOM remake yeah. comes to mind not XCOM 2 War of the Chosen which is basically an RPG but the first XCOM has fairly basic control of your units but controlling four yeah. of them and all the positioning and everything it kind of compensates when you're controlling one character it's just it's just boring it's just without any merit or interest whatsoever did you take cover with your guns at all? Like, because my character... Because one of the things there that was... annoyed me was that there was no interesting terrain to take advantage of. And this was probably especially bad for my character who always wanted to be, you know, face-to-face -face with people. So I was never hiding behind things. So definitely there was a bit of kiting and there was, like, like abusing environments to make their their turn run run towards me and that's all they did and then i'd duck out and shoot yeah but that was that was all you have after you take an aim shot you've only got three movement points so you're pretty limited in your ability to maneuver around the battlefield yeah similar i mean i i had seven agility and i think i had a perk that allowed me one more i think i ended up with eight action points so you, the amount you can move with with let's assume you have five action points for a name shot which is all i really ever did unless i just had enough action points left for a regular shot you could only move three squares which really isn't a lot the best thing i can say about the combat is that it's 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 usually avoidable there aren't many situations in the game where i absolutely had to fight and that is is probably the the best thing i can say the AI of your companions is beyond terrible. I mean, if they're not getting in your way, then they're shooting. <laughs> it's so well, they're bad. They're shooting you in the back. I mean, in the early game, when yeah. Ian has an Uzi, your your hit points are such, and the, and the armor that you're wearing is such that he could kill you in one if he gets a decent roll. 
he could kill you in one attack and then it's nothing more frustrating the dog is effective but why does it walk so slowly slowly why does it do that you're in a fight why can't it run that's another thing. Like, there is an option in the combat to turn up the speed of combat, but even on the max setting, I felt that characters walked around so slowly, like... Um, and there was this other thing that was probably more of an issue for me than you guys. So I had the Super Sledge very early on because I had lots of money, so I bought it, like... I bought it before I finished the water chip, so it was quite early on. Um, every attack with it sends enemies flying. Um, and enemies, when they get sent flying, do so in this weirdly, like, linear fashion, like, linear motion. Like, when you hit somebody away, they would accelerate and then slow down as they got to the end. <laughs> in Fallout 1, when people go flying, they move at a set speed the entire time, which is not only kind of immersion-breaking, but, like, I would always send people flying to the opposite side of the map. So you'd have to wait like a full like eight seconds watching this stupid animation play out. And then you'd so, have to run towards him again. Yeah, which would take me like four turns. So near the end of the game, I was very specifically positioning my character so that enemies were backed up against a wall so I could attack them twice per turn. That was probably the, you know, the deepest part of my strategy in the entire game. Um, I agree that the combat's probably the worst part of the game and for me this was a bit of a deal breaker because my character couldn't do anything but combat so i'd say the majority of my time in fallout 1 was spent doing combat unfortunately oh dear so um i i feel like i need to i've done it a couple of times already but i need to bring up underrail here because if i had to cite one strength that underrail has above and beyond everything else it's its combat like, its world building is actually probably comparable to Fallout. Its characters are mostly similarly flat, but the combat in Underrail is a masterpiece. Like, it's it's actually masterful. Um, all the different guns have variable... Uh, have variable values for, for shooting. There's all these different ammunition types. Um, really importantly, the RPG perk system that they've got, because they've got a perk or feat system, whatever you want to call it, does a lot to give you extra abilities in combat like it'll say if you use this before combat you can prepare a special shot for free or this grants you the ability to snipe someone out of stealth so you can go into stealth find a good shot spot and take a shot or sacrifice hp for a turn um get some extra action points or you know this is a special thing that is crowd control it will stun a target for one turn all these different things add to the tactical depth of of a tactical RPG. And even though you're controlling just one character, you have so many options available to you. Fallout, you have zero options available to you. It might trick you into thinking you have two options, but really you got zero. You got to do the one thing and you do it over and over and over until the bloody end of time. I strongly strongly dislike the combat in this game and while yeah the the game world and dialogue is a little flat i think fallout 1's combat is like actively bad uh it's not quite as bad as party-based jrpg combat but it's i'm close. actually <laughs> surprised you're saying that because i think this game has like 
a tenth of the options that, for example, Lunar did. And you, we were both pretty low on that combat system. But even that, you have six characters to control who each have eight spells. Like, it's still boring, but it's, like, way more interesting than this. The only thing that I would say that Edge's Fallout 1 over Lunar's combat, for example, is that you do weigh less of it. If I did as much Fallout combat as there were encounters in Lunar Silver Star Story, I would hate this game, <laughs> like, to bits. Like, it is so dull, um, the combat yeah, in this game. You're right. If it was to get through this dungeon, you had to engage in, you know, all these fights, I probably would hate it as much. But you've also got this notion of weapon selection. I had pretty much every single weapon available to me and they did function kind of differently, even though I settled on one in the end. So I had a bit of fun experimenting with the different weapons. And, um... You know, there is some kiting to be done. The VAT system, where you can aim for a specific body part, was fun to experiment with until I realized that you just go for critical hits all the time. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's a fair point, James. I think the amount of combat you deal with and the fact that you keep getting to, you know, once you finish combat, you kind of get to go back to a hub and talk to people for a while kind of relieves a lot of the frustration I had with it. Yeah, the VAT system's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I again, having not played Fallout 3, I can't speak to what it does in the modern games, but from, from the reviews I've read, the one of the positives of, of Fallout 3 particularly is the combat system and how it implements the VAT system. I mean, here it feels tacked on at best, irrelevant at worst. I think I might have aimed for a limb once or twice, and then realize why would I do that when I shoot for the eyes with a ninety-five percent chance of success? I've got a, you know, I've got a decent chance of doing a critical hit. I never once got a limb injured, ever. I I was either alive or dead, poisoned or radiated, but I never once had a an arm injured. Yeah, there's a low chance, and also you have a lower chance to hit the leg because it's a small target. <laughs> what sort of so point? I I think. I think there's some serious balance issues there. Like, if it was something like, if you shoot them in their leg, you're guaranteed to take off some action yeah. points, like yeah. movement action points, like halves action points, or shoot them in the arm and they have a 50% chance to fumble that shot yeah. or whatever. Well, now you're incentivized to do it. And honestly, probably not even then. You're not incentivized enough to explore the VAT system because going for the head and killing an enemy and taking them out permanently is always going to be better than the 5% chance that you marginally disable them. I never once crit because of that or got a limb or anything like that. My limbs got crippled all the time because almost every time I missed, one of my arms would get crippled. Um, <laughs> because of critical misses? It, yeah, 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 because yeah, of that. Um, but I basically never used that because it cost an extra action point that I couldn't afford most of the time. Um, ah, I see. So I had no weapon selection. I had the Super Sledge for 90% of the game, um, and I had no VAT system, so I just had walking and hitting. Oh, wow. Um, that was my whole playthrough. Like, you'd think that if you invest heavily in combat, you'd get, you know, more options, but I don't know. It didn't really work out that way for me. It sounds like guns are a little bit more interesting than yeah, melee. Um, absolutely. But they're not, they're not much more interesting. I, I, I really dislike the combat, and I can see why you hate it as much as you do, because if I was forced to play that way, I'd, I'd hate it just as much. Yeah. Um, there was one part of the 
you know, combat gameplay that I thought was really good. Um, but that wasn't, it's not anything to do with the decisions you make. It's all about the feedback you get in combat. I think that actually hitting things um, and seeing things explode into giblets or be set on fire or get sent flying across the screen or, you know, the dozens and dozens of different things that can happen when you critically miss and get shown in the little text box at the bottom of the screen um, makes the combat a lot more enjoyable for me. Like, the sheer variety and good feedback that you get while fighting things um, made it a lot more tolerable because, like, sometimes, like, you'd shoot them and they just explode into chunks and the animations for these deaths are really quite brutal and the sound effects are great. Mm. So uh, that was something I actually really liked about it. Did um did either of you have the bloody mess perk no. like I did? <laughs> no. The bloody the bloody mess perk turns every kill into a critical kill death animation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so every single time I killed someone, it was gruesome as anything, and I loved it. Fantastic. I agree with you, James. The de- death animations are something um like ever since we played Diablo, Diablo it's one, Diablo yeah. One. Yeah. It's yeah. something that I've always paid attention to and it really does it's satisfying to watch someone explode into a million bits. Did you guys ever see somebody get flamed and like they get set on fire when they die? That was like horrific to watch. <laughs> like I'm not really a sque- squeamish person when it comes to video games but that made me feel a little uncomfortable like they get set on fire and the animation for it is just so brutal and they scream as they incinerate and roll around on the floor Ooh. it's like it lasts for like six or seven seconds it's really quite something jeez just like in uh fury i don't know if you've seen that movie but it's no. a pretty gruesome set on fire scene the, yeah the sound design the sound design coupled with the animation as well probably deserves a little bit of credit because the the guns yeah. I, f- I found have a nice, hefty, particularly some of the better pistols, the uh, the one that I used most of the time, which which is, which is one of the kind of specialist pistols, had a really nice meaty sound to it and a much different sound to the regular pistol that you had at the start. And that coupled with the death animation, it does it, it, it does give it a satisfying conclusion if you if you do land a critical to, to, to give it some credit. Yeah, the um the one that plays because you fight a lot of super mutants with chain guns later in the game the The one that plays when he just turns you into swiss cheese (laughs) i like that one a lot even though 90 percent of the time when i saw that i reloaded my game yeah exactly (laughs) even even just something um when i got the smg from vault 15 you you, it has a burst fire function yeah and when you use it like the i'm sure it's the same with the mini guns or whatever but when you use it you see the bits of flesh like coming off bit by bit as the person dies oh i mean i'm i've always been like as a tarantino fan i've always thought that that gore has always been like entertaining in how in how it's depicted it probably is a bit more horrific than entertaining though but i i took it in the spirit of tarantino so hopefully i'm not too bad a person i think this game does it better than a lot of games i've played like modern games like the feedback on killing stuff is brilliant yeah um i just wish that the actual gameplay and like my decisions were interesting and fun i'm looking forward to seeing what if anything they do to change or improve it depending on your perspective uh, in fallout 2 my fear from what i've read about fallout 2 is the answer to that is going to be not a lot if anything 
and we might have to... Can you control your companions you... is a big one. Can you control your companions? Yeah. Okay, yes, well, that will make I, a I difference. Know. Oh, thank we, God. I was talking about it with Bustin' Round, so you have full companion control. Or, at the very least, if you install some mods, you can gain full companion control. So, at at a very baseline level, that's going to add more to your yeah, tactics. Because you can... You can you can have a party of like you can have a melee guy yeah. and a sniper guy yeah. and a machine gun guy. You can position them. There's stuff you can do. Yeah, for sure. No, that will make a difference. If if that's the only thing that they do, that will make that will be an improvement. Yeah. Um, something that like the the encounter design and the enemies that you fight is another thing that I take issue with. Like they're not that different from each other. There's no enemies that you you know you'll play differently based on what they are like you fight humans and super mutants and some ghouls but like my strategy never changed based on who i was fighting and most of the time where i was fighting either the worst offender for this is the random encounters you get on the overworld because all of the random encounters on the overworld are in these like complete flat planes with zero like buildings or anything in them they're just a flat desert and you're smack dab in the middle of them so you know like the encounter design just is also just not there for me on top of having limited options did you did you fight any of those encounters because i always just ran away it's always super easy just to run to the edge of the map and just escape oh i fought all of them because i could okay chris i assume you ran away like me if it was six rats, then I would happily kind of take them out just for just for the just for the very small amount of experience I'd get. But the the worst was towards the end of the game when you get in the vicinity of the military base and those random encounters, mm. the super mutants. I mean, forget about it. You know, here's me and my acolyte robes running around the wasteland confronted with four super mutants and some horrible monster. The only thing that saved me in those encounters is that the super mutants would, would quite happily put themselves in the line of fire of their mates with their miniguns so as to save me. And that would be the thing that would allow me get allow me to get sufficiently distant that they couldn't then kill me. Because they are one-hit kills for, for my character. I mean, if I get touched by a minigun, I'm dead. Oh, my God. I would have... Man, you must. So we able to escape pretty easily because I can imagine getting in there and just reloading over and over and over. Well, well, like just not being able to get away. I never could do the journey from, say, the Brotherhood or Vault Thirteen to the military base without at least one encounter with super mutants. I mean, and I must have tried ten, twelve times. And I always at least had one. And it would only take one. As I said, the only thing that would save me is if I lined them up. Because some of them, super mutants, would be uh, melee characters. And, and some of them would have the miniguns. And the only thing that would save me is that as I ran away, the, the guys that were trying to get up close to me would put themselves in the line of fire and would then get shot themselves by the... Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing that you were able to get through that. I'd be I'd be like, no, I'm not playing this game anymore. Well by that point <laughs> it, it was right at the end, you know, and I had I had found I, I had found a like of the game, you know, because the world had kind of got its teeth mm. into me and I wanted to see even though you know that the end game is is not where it's at in terms of story, you know, it's not really that interesting. But I did I wanted to see the end at that point. I was sufficiently invested that I would 
cope with those frustrations and just find a way to get through it. Yeah, so, I mean, in the end, like, I wish I could spend hours talking about the combat, but the thing is, there's just not much there. Did, did you guys have any anything else to say? Um, really, no. I just really did not enjoy it. Like, especially at the start of the game when you were going through all of these tunnel systems that just have, like, one rat, yeah. like, perfectly spread out so that you would get into combat with a single rat, fight it for a couple of turns end combat take two steps forward another rat and repeat that for like i don't know like 12 rats but it's not 12 it's like 40 like, yeah it's <laughs> like 40 rats. it's some ridiculous and then you go to vault 15 and you're like what the hell there, there are literally 40 rats per <laughs> level and yeah the the only thing I would say is for anybody listening to this who's not played Fallout or hasn't played it for a while and wants to go back to it, my advice would be design your character in a way that you can avoid combat where you can. I mean, I'm in the whole course of the game, not including the random encounters on the world map, I probably had three fights, so I really didn't do a lot of it, and I'm and and, and I'm Jeez. and I'm glad. How did you beat the last boss? I'm really curious about this because uh, I I struggled on the last boss a lot because I know if you've got guns, you can kind of um, step out behind these pillars and shoot him. I had to be in melee range of him like the whole fight and I just would get insta-killed every like four turns. No, I didn't fight him. Oh, okay. I, I, I did fight him. Yeah. And uh, it was not fun. How did you do it, Patrick? Um, I, uh, I, by that time I invested a bunch of points into speech. So I, I also had a conversation with him and I convinced him otherwise. So yeah, used, uh, used speech. The guy in the military base or, or the, the, the weird, um, quasi mechanically alien looking thing? The military base guy. Oh. Um, oh, no, no, sorry. I'm getting confused. I set off a nuke in one place and then I used speech on the other. Right. Okay. So mine was the same. So I used speech on the leader in the in the cathedral yeah i convinced him that yes. his his plan was doomed to fail because his yes. his, his his ghouls couldn't uh couldn't reproduce and he said oh no what have i done i need to blow everything up and he did which was very kind of him and the other one you could you could sneak in the back and set a new so i have my robes from from the sneaking into the cathedral so i i put my robes on again my my children of the cathedral of the children robes trekked across the wasteland mm. managed to avoid the super mutants got there i then used the radio to call away the guards so you you find a radio in the world i use that within the vicinity of the base then the guards who are on standby all but one of them disappear so i could just walk in i convinced the guard that was near the door that i was one of the the children and he should let me in and he did i then saved scum to steal the passcode for the door from the guard and that took me because my steel skill was really low probably took me about <laughs> 10 or 11 goes but in the end i did it without alerting him i then got in and was able to just walk around because i was wearing the robes and yeah nobody challenged me i then yeah managed to get right down to the bottom level set the bomb on the computer 
and then just walked out and that was that. Yeah, I did a lot more murdering. <laughs> <laughs> but your method sounds really cool and it sounds it's very cool that, that there was a way to do it. But yeah, I kind of used guns more than speech uh, throughout my playthrough. The big credit of the game and, and the, the one thing that I will take away from it and I think it does deserve a lot of credit for is that it feels as if any character build can get through to the end. You might miss... A lot of content because certain quests are closed or you haven't just haven't got the chops to to do the combat but if in terms of getting from the start to roll of the credits the game is sufficiently flexible it seems that almost any character build can do it and that's a good thing yeah and your character is a testament to that if uh if nothing else is yeah I agree with this sentiment a lot I think this is like one of the most replayable games I've ever played um, something that I think works really well for this is that the main quest only has three quests as opposed to uh, every time I play a Bethesda game be it like Elder Scrolls or Fallout I always feel like I want to do all the side missions and then at some point I have to you know painstakingly go through you know 20 main quests in order to progress the world um, so I really liked that I could you know, do whatever I wanted for the majority of the game, and then, you know, there was only three specific things I had to do here. Although maybe that's a function um, of the game world being kind of small. Um, but I thought they did that really well, and I agree. I think you could play this game any way you wanted, basically, and it would work. Um, for me, though, that's kind of interesting, because if you give a game like a 10 out of 10 for replayability, but your enjoyment of the game the first time through wasn't that high. Does it even matter that it's super replayable? Because, like, I honestly, I don't really want to play through this game again. Um, the combat and the story didn't hook me enough for that. So it's kind of like, that's there, and I appreciate that's there, but I'm never really going to experience it. What, what you could say, though, is that you've enjoyed Fallout 1 for what it is, and now you want to play Fallout 2. But you probably don't want to start with Fallout 2. So it was a painful experience, but that doesn't, in a lot of ways, but that doesn't mean that it was necessarily an experience not worth having. And in context, you will value having that as part of your experience playing the Fallout games as a whole, right? Um, I agree with you. I I would not play Fallout 1 again. In, in fact, every second I was playing Fallout 1, I was saying, Man, I sure wish I could play Underrail again. And I think I'm going to do another Underrail playthrough. <laughs> so, so it's, I mean, it's inspired me in that way. Um, yeah. Should we, how are we feeling about moving to final impressions? I guess we've got to touch on graphics a bit more, but, uh, or is there any, anything else people want to talk about? I had a spicy opinion that, um, I forgot about in the combat, uh, section, um, that I kind of want to, briefly touch right. on just for what, what we'll do is we'll, we'll cut to my music the best music of all the options and then we'll uh resume with miscellaneous thoughts touch on graphics and wrap up wrap up how does that sound? sounds like sounds fun. good to me yep let's do it okay so this is the song i've selected um it's open the vaults um as i said earlier it's got all the vault sounds kind of integrated into the soundtrack in a really interesting way um and somehow even the striking of keys on a typewriter sound ominous
That was Vault of the Future, which Patrick completely failed to get the name right, but, you know, that's <laughs> nothing new on the show. <laughs> um, I have just one little thing that I wanted to talk about in the combat section, but I forgot. Um, and I would kind of gloss over it, but it's spicy and I wanted to share it. But when Patrick was talking about Underrail having all of these special abilities, I kind of thought about Divinity Original Sin and how that combat's really interesting because you have so many options. And when I was playing Fallout 1, I was trying to think of how to make it more interesting, and that kind of crossed my mind. But at the same time, I don't think that adding heaps of abilities kind of suits the more grounded setting. So... I struggled with that for a while, and then I realized, like, it's so obvious they should just make this game into a shooter. <laughs> and I felt like somebody, like, I always read people's opinions of the Fallout series, and pe I always see people saying that it was better as a tactical game. And I didn't even really like Fallout 3's gunplay at all, but I felt like it was better than what was here. So I'm glad that they evolved genres a little bit, and I think that that's an opinion that lots of people definitely don't share. <laughs> well, it, it's just straight up wrong, because Underrail <laughs> exists, and it shows that you can do Fallout-style yeah. combat with lots of abilities. You just need to not make them magical abilities. You have Snipe, and you have special bolt preparation or you know one of the big ones is cripple shot like you can go for a thing that will cripple their ability to move which is kind of what the vat system implies with going for a leg shot but it just doesn't work in practice so james your opinion's terrible and you should feel bad <laughs> i feel so bad hearing you say that surely you would prefer an fps any day of the week <laughs> <laughs> um, if I hadn't played Under Rail, maybe I'd be more sympathetic, but that game just does the combat perfectly as far as I'm concerned. I love it to pieces. So. Okay, maybe I'll have to play Under Rail. Then. Yeah, sounds like everyone needs to play Under Rail if it's that good. Yeah. Damn right, <laughs> they do. I, I need to have a single person to talk to it about, so yes, please. <laughs> All right, well, we can move on to final impressions now um patrick do you want to lead us on what did you think of fallout one um fallout one was very interesting and i was tossing and turning as to whether i would give it a seal of approval and a recommend at the end of the day i'm gonna have to say i do not recommend fallout one so there are aspects of this game which are fascinating like i love the background lore and there's two locations in particular um the cathedral and the glow which are just fantastic to play through. Even even though I was fighting people, I didn't even care because it's they've both got great visual storytelling, great environmental storytelling, um, interesting stuff to delve into, and they're just it's just fascinating how learning about how the world came to be in the place it was on. But the way I played through it with a lot of combat was tedious as hell. I found the world pretty flat and perfunctory, which um. As I think Chris said it really well when he said that there's no emotional hook at the end of the day, which which can be fine if the gameplay is good, but the gameplay isn't there either. I think that the number one strike against this game is the existence of Underrail. Um, I know I've been banging <laughs> on about it endlessly, but if I was to recommend a game like Fallout to a person, I could not in good conscience recommend them Fallout 1 over Underrail. That's not to say there aren't interesting things about this game, but Underrail does 
mostly everything equal or better. So if you're after the kind of game and experience that Fallout 1 provides, unless you're very specifically keyed into the world of Fallout and you want to know more about the world of Fallout, which to be fair, it's an interesting world, um, play Under Rail instead. And then if you fall in love with the genre as a whole, this tactical turn-based thing, maybe you can add it down on, on the list as, you know, game number six to explore. But as it is, this experience wasn't an overall positive one for me, even though there were interesting aspects of it. Yeah, so for me, it's difficult. Because when you break down each of the component parts of Fallout, none of them really are very good. The UI is horrible. Uh, Non-aesthetically, functionally, it's horrible. The graphics, which we haven't really talked about specifically, but we have touched upon, are bland. The locations have, or most locations have, very nothing really distinctive about them. There's a lot of brown. The environment is brown. The buildings are brown. The character sprites are brown. They're not very interesting to look at. The speech is perfunctory at best. It's it's so limited. The combat isn't very good, in our opinion, as we've described. The story, the main story, isn't really that interesting. But there's something there. There is enough there that made me play this game for 20 hours or so. There is enough there in the world, if you're prepared to really go and look for it. Some of the individual stories are interesting, and there's enough there about the world generally, which whilst, despite the fact that it is very replayable, I don't think I'll ever play Fallout 1 again. I'm certainly not ready to just jump back in and play it again now. I am, though, quite excited about playing Fallout 2, even though I know... It is based on the same engine and came out only 12 months later, so it can't be that different. I am excited to see what happens next. And then I'm even more excited about playing 3, New Vegas and 4. So there is it, it got me enough to get me invested now in the Fallout world and the Fallout series. Would I give this a recommend and a seal of approval? And I'm deliberately here, I'm, I'm embracing the retrospectives uh, way in not trying to look at it with 1997 glasses on, because I think if we did, maybe our views would be different. But I am basing this solely on today. Would I recommend Fallout 1 as an individual game experience? No. However, I think if you are going to really get into the Fallout series, how could you not start at the beginning? Because there is stuff there in the world which tells you a lot about what happened in the immediate aftermath of the war. So as a history piece in terms of getting into the series, I probably would recommend that it's that you play it. Just don't expect to have a thoroughly thrilling experience every moment that you're playing. Go in with some trepidation. <laughs> but but play it. <laughs> I from a history point of view, I kind of agree. There is a lot of interesting stuff here with the rudimentary character portrait conversations that were, you know, very early on into the genre and all of the interesting RPG foundation that this game, you know, builds on. But 
In terms of whether or not I think you should play this game today, uh, it is a very hard no from me. Um, I did not really enjoy the world building of this game, granted my character didn't get access to the large majority of it, but more importantly, the part of the game that my character was supposed to be good at, the combat, was an actively bad experience. It was slow, it was tedious, it was boring, there was quite a lot of it. Um, and I spent the majority of my time, you know, waiting for characters to move or just simply repeating attack, click, attack, click, attack, click. That was like the vast majority of my gameplay experience was this kind of like mindless gameplay loop. So no, I can't recommend Fallout 1 in good faith. I think that it is a very tight package um, that feels complete, but... It was simply not fun for me to play, unfortunately. Yeah, so um, that about wraps it up. Thank you so much to everyone for taking the time to listen. Um, James and I make up the Retrospectors podcast each and every fortnight. We review classic games of the past to see if they've stood the test of time. And for the most part, uh, with uh, contextual considerations aside, Fallout 1 has not. So I look forward to hearing what you guys think. Um, you can find all of our content on our website, which is rspodcast.net. It's got links to all of our um, social media and our RSS feed. Uh, most importantly, it's got a link to our Discord server, and we would be delighted if you would come in and tell us what you think, whether we're misguided fools who aren't appreciating Fallout 1, or whether we are bang on the money. Either one is acceptable. We will engage you in the arena of conversation either way. Um, we were joined by a very special guest, um, Chris Worthington. Chris, where can everyone find you? Well, just before I do that, I would just like to thank you guys. Oh. First of all, for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've always wanted to play Fallout. It, will have, it would have been infinitely less fun had I been doing it on my own without no outlet, <laughs> without an outlet to talk about it. So it's been a really, really good fun being on the, on the show. And also just to thank you for all the work that you put in. You know, I know, I know myself how, how much work goes into, to what you do. So I'm very grateful. I know your listeners are very grateful. I'm part of that Discord community as well. And uh, guys, keep up the good work. I look forward to many, many more retrospectives episode and i look forward i look forward to getting you on retro asylum later this year we date to be announced but we're looking to do that some point late summer and uh, we'll we'll see whether things improve a little bit with fallout 2 but i'm i'm definitely looking forward to hosting you guys over at retro asylum and in terms of where people can find me and what i produce so i'm on twitter my handle is at retro clarence and that's what i also use on on discord as well and Two podcasts of mine. One is Retro Asylum. You'll find us on all podcast platforms, or the vast majority of them, and also at www.retroasylum.com. There are 10 years' worth of a back catalogue there to go and explore. The show has evolved massively over that time with hosts coming and going. And, yeah, if you want to come and get involved in our community, then do so. You'll find a link to Discord over on that website. And also, and, and the new endeavour, which only started in December, is Playthrough, where a group of, I like to say young, but some would say middle-aged gamers, play through, <laughs> um, yeah, unfortunately, it's probably true. We, we play through modern and middle-aged games, and as I said at the start, it's a companion piece, it's a playthrough. Normally our series involve multiple episodes where we play to a milestone point, set milestones in each of the games, and then we'll record for an hour or two, chat about what we've done so far, what we think is going to happen next, 
and then we carry on and play the rest. So two very different podcasts, but with the same kind of DNA running through them. And that you'll find that it's playthrough on your podcast platforms or one word or www.playthroughpod.com. Chris, you are you are too kind, and it's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank mm. you so much. My pleasure. I'm really looking forward to the Fallout 2 episode, mostly because I'm not going to have to edit that episode. <laughs> <laughs> but I also think that it's like, like Chris, I'm interested in the world of Fallout to see how it evolves. Um, and with the addition of companions, like it's only going to be better, right? So, you know, looking forward to that at the end of the year. Yeah, and I should clarify that even though I didn't give it a recommend, that doesn't mean I regret my time playing these games. Me neither. Sometimes, sometimes you need to play them from start to finish to uh, better appreciate why you know what works and what doesn't. And I'm now I can play Fallout too. I was never going to play play it without playing Fallout 1 yeah, first. So. exactly, exactly. So that just about does it. Um, that sums up our episode of Fallout. So James, I picked Fallout this fortnight, so what game are we doing next? So I was struggling to pick a game, so I, again, dabbled into the big bag of goodies we have on Discord, where we have many, many user recommendations, um, and we had some people tell us that we should play Resident Evil 1 um, to coincide with 8 coming out, Um just yesterday or today i think um and i think that was a great idea because we haven't done a horror game since well like episode six yeah. yeah silent hill 2 it's been like a good 60 episodes or something since then so i think it'd be good to get back into that so we'll be playing i believe the gamecube version which is the one that's most up to date or has the fanciest graphics um and you know i'm really looking forward to it because i've only played resident evil 7 uh, up until so this played, point so i've played zero resident evil games so i'm i've watched i've watched complete playthroughs of one two and three because there's these guys called uh, rkg um who do playthroughs and i fell in love with them because of a dark souls playthrough of course uh <laughs> so i've I, i'm like i've experienced a lot of these games from a distance but i've never had the controller in my hands having to fiddle with the inventory management and the opening of doors so i don't know if i'm gonna if i'm actively looking forward <laughs> to this but it's going to be interesting nonetheless have you ever played any of the resi games chris oh yeah yeah i've i'm up to date as of so i've played up to and including six so i need to play seven and the two remake and the three remake and then obviously now eight so i'm uh, i'm a big fan a massive fan of the series and i i really really like the traditional the old school Resi games. I've played the GameCube version of, of Resident Evil many times through. It, it's a really snappy game. You can get through it even even if you've not played it before. It'll only take you kind of eight to ten hours to get through it. Nice. I, I can't wait to see what you think because it is uh, it, it, it's the kind of game which, which they don't make anymore. Can I ask, w would you recommend the GameCube version over the original? Yeah. Because from the limited research we've done, it seems to mostly be the same game, just with a graphical update. Yeah, it is 90% the same game. There were some changes. Some of the puzzles were slightly changed, made a little fairer. And I think there was an, there is an area in the remake which wasn't there in the original which fleshes out the story which is a load of a load of cobblers Terror anyway puzzles i'm in <laughs> well compared to the original the problem with the original is that it's it's graphics have aged really badly so it was one of the early 3d games now which which looks yeah it, they've 
they've aged badly. But the remake, I think, still looks really, really good today. The graphics hold up tremendously. So I think you'll have a much better time with the remake. And story-wise and content-wise, you're not missing anything by not playing the original. Okay, excellent. All right, well, I guess that locks it in. GameCube remake we go. So we'll see you guys in two weeks, and we'll give you our update and our reviews of the spooky Resident Evil. See you later. (laughs) 